VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you so much for tuning into the program. It's Friday, March the 10th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and Fonz King, he's producing this. Come on with an edition of Open Line. So if you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial is 273-5211. Elsewhere, it's toll-free, long distance, one 590 vocm which is 8626. Well, there's enough snow on the vehicle to break out the scraper today. It is pretty slick underfoot, so watch your bobbers. Speaking of slick, of course, the municipalities have lots of salt. But people are having a hard time finding their favorite 10-kilogram bag of road salt. So the folks at Avalon Coal Salt and Oil, they got a big delivery, tens of thousands of faulty 10-kg bags. I couldn't find one, so I went with the bigger 20-kilogram bag. But the 10-kg is far and wide their bestseller. But imagine we talk supply chain issues, faulty bags for salt. Okay. All right, so let's go up to London, Ontario at the Briar. Playoff time. Love it. Guju and Rink going for their fifth title in seven years. They don't have their opponent for today yet decided. They're going to play the winner of Alberta versus Ontario. And then whoever wins that game playing Team Canada, which is Guju, they, the winner of that will go on to the 1-2 game, the loser into the 3-4 game. But, you know, sometimes I know people take for granted that one of the best curlers, if not two of the best curlers on the planet, are from here. So Guju and Mark Nichols. I wonder where they rank, in your opinion. And I, I love these little fun debates because it's hard to compare sport versus sport, but those two fellas in particular have to be amongst the very best athletes the province has ever produced. There's no question. So you can chime in. Just offer your suggestion on Twitter or email or even call if you want to talk about it. So who was on that list? Guju, Nichols, Frankie Humber, Darren Colburn, uh, Rod Snow. Snow was certainly on that list. Katerina Roxon, our National Hockey League guys, Laura Breen, I don't know. Pam Ennis, Siobhan Duff, let's see uh, someone on the road. Ferd Hayward, Paul McCloy, maybe Terry Ryan, Pam Ennis, Ann Barrington, I don't know. But I'm sure I should have probably blown out those names because leave out some obvious ones. But who is the best athlete the province has ever produced? Have a fun chat. Dawson Mercer, maybe the start of another goal-scoring st- uh, streak. He's on a heater, another goal and an assist last night. Beauty, he's having a great season. Nook with the assist, or as they call it, an apple. And down at the Mary Brown Center tonight, the Growlers back in action versus the Reading Royals. Okay, you've heard this story in the newscast. It'll be all over the media, and it's an important one. And it's not just about violence at Prince of Wales Collegiate. Even though there's been many incidents in that school, and there seems to be an escalation, the assault yesterday was particularly violent. So parents are frustrated, and their children may be traumatized, and might be angry, whatever the case may be, but they're going to congregate at the uh, school this morning. They're there right now trying to get some answers. Because when we don't have open lines of communication, our minds all stray to the very similar spots, right? Worst case scenarios. So there's rumors or rumbles that the attackers got into the school, which you should never be able to do during the uh, school day. Then there's the talk of some of the weapons that may have been in play between bats and knives and hatchets and all the rest. I don't know what happened, but it was obviously a very serious incident. I've heard from many families since yesterday, and they are the combination of all those uh, aforementioned emotions. So what do we do, and how do you curb it? Now, the RNC have struck one of their uh, uh, investigative units to go ahead and see what they can find out here, but they are looking for the public's help. So whether it be security footage coming from the area, Patton Street, Elizabeth Avenue from Westerlin Road all the way to Freshwater Road, Anderson Avenue, Stab Court, Keegan Court, uh, Copperwaith Court, and Mitchell Court. So 
Let's see if we can help the RNC find out who did this. And if you're a family of a student at PwC you want to chime in, we can do it. And of course, it's not fair to say it's only a uh, Princess of Wales Collegiate. It can happen in any school, but it's happened a few times there. So, scary story. And the rumor mill is alive and well. So, what, we have what, security guards in, in the schools, or what's going to have to happen here? And, you know, one more uh, point on that. So, it was someone, a group, ganged up on this one 16-year-old. Of course, he's at the January being treated for some serious injuries. And, of course, when you go around as a gang, ganging up on one person, it's a collection of cowards. Not only criminals, but cowards. Right? Okay. Let's go to the West Coast. So the Stephenville Airport saga continues. Council has voted to approve monthly contributions of $32,500 to the Stephenville Airport Corporation to keep operations alive while we see what will happen with the Diamond Group of companies in there. Very lofty plans to invest hundreds of millions of dollars and thousands of jobs and build the cargo drones and all the rest of it, return some commercial air traffic to the airport. So, look, the cynicism and skepticism out there is widespread. And rightfully so. I mean, this has been dragging on for a long, long time. A bunch of deadlines have come and gone. Mayor Tom Rose of Stephenville is, seems to be quite bullish on it. But he also says that we're very, very close, probably just a month away, from not being able to afford any more of the taxpayers' money to the Stephenville airport. So, you know, there's a school of thought that says maybe let this run its course. Provincial money hasn't been thrown in at this point yet. The province has cut off the line of credit that they had in place for the operations at Stephenville Airport. I don't know what's going to happen here, but apparently it all hinges on one ancient insolvency proceeding which is going to be in court on the 12th of April. And I guess at that point, that'll be the who shall. It's either on or it's off. But the folks in Stephenville, I would imagine there's a bunch of residents kind of wondering whether or not that's a good idea to vote that money uh, into the Stephenville Airport's hands. Councillor Lenny Tiller, again, the only councillor to vote against this, saying that it might lead to an increase in taxes or a cut in expenditures. He's absolutely right. The money has to come from somewhere. So, folks in Stephenville, if you're yay or nay on the plan, or you think it's nothing to see here, or it's a waste of time, or it's a hoax, or it might happen, I'll leave it up to you. It's your money that's being brought to the folks at Stephenville Airport to keep it going. But, yeah, this has been happening for a long time. Right, and speaking of travel, I'm still getting mostly, I'd say 90% of the emails I get regarding the province's efforts to whether it be with Aer Lingus or Condor, which is a German carrier, to try to get more direct access to Europe and conversations, whether it be with New Newark International in New Jersey. I think it's important to try well, to do what we can to improve access to the province for a variety of reasons, not just tourism, but if you want to take that on. And, of course, intra-provincial travel cost is also prohibitive for a lot of folks here in NL. All right. So much confusion and contradictions in the world of some of the ambulance issues, whether it be fewers and having to go back to the House Assembly to deem these employees represented by the Teamsters Local 855 as essential. And now Wade Smith is speaking out about the fact that his ambulance service contract at Whitburn was cancelled. So on March the 2nd, they all found out. And what he goes on to say is, right now we don't know why this is happening. Also adds, no one has told us anything. No one and nobody has met with us to try to resolve this. So the health authority, Eastern Health, and the Department of Health, they assert that the, uh, the contractual obligations were not met, and there was a refusal for, to go out on a call. Smith says, we went on the call. They've got the documentation and the paramedics who were on the call to say, yes, we did. There was one incident during the winter months, I think it was back in uh, February last year, where there was... Uh, Terrible conditions, 
and under the occupational health and safety legislation, people are allowed to refuse unsafe work. So there was a power outage at the station. The visibility was poor. So, you know, who, what's going on here? You know, same thing when we talk about the ambulance in Cape Royal. The minister says that uh, notice was given two and a half months ago, six months notice by Fury's pulling out. Fury said we, did, we gave no such notice. So, again, even if it's not what people want to hear, information and the sharing of information and open lines of communication are the only way to navigate these things. Even if it's something that is absolutely not what you want to hear, is contradictory to your hopes and your needs of service in your region, but the contradictions are just piling up on some of these ambulance issues. So, again, what becomes of some of these employees? I think there's 13 of them. We had one of them, Monique, on the show yesterday. Her name is actually covered in the stories. Her Monique McGraw. She's given them about a week, and if no decision or no restoration of service, she's gone. Yet another paramedic moving. I believe she's uh, looking at Nova Scotia as the next province to move to to continue her career as a paramedic. And she's only 20. Exactly the kind of people we do not want to lose. So, oh, that's good. I see Wade Smith is already in the queue. So we'll get to you, Mr. Smith, right after our first break. But what is going on out there? Imagine such an important service, and no one's telling them anything. No one met with them. Same thing, I think, when we see contracts like, for instance, uh, gladdening school buses. So there was, of course, a very serious incident, and a man was killed. It all sounds very much like an accident, a very unfortunate, tragic circumstance. But his contract goes away, and these students who were left in the lurch and the schools, some, I don't, can't remember how many schools were impacted, it took a week to restore the service, but using Gladney's buses and Gladney's drivers for the most part. So some of these things are just, I don't know what's really going on. Okay. Ottawa. Federal Minister of Health, Eve Duclos, speaking out on a couple of issues. One in particular, he's, he's warning provinces to not allow charging for necessary medical care, contra- contravening the Canada Health Act. If so, health care transfer dollars will be compromised. So there's the, refer- the reference to an insured person. So if you are in your own province getting virtual care in this incident, in your own province, like for instance, just pick one, Medicuro, They bill MCP for your service. But there's a bunch of companies out there that are finding a way around it. And the fees range from some $50 to $100. So how do they get around this, what's called an insured person? You go to one of them called, whether it be Maple or other virtual care operations. And what they do is that, say, for instance, you're sitting here and you go through that company. You'll see a doctor virtually in another province. Consequently, you're not an insured person and a fee can be charged. Now, that's playing footloose and fancy free with the rules that are in place. So if you're going to choose virtual care, which is not for everybody, and we don't really know what place it holds in the healthcare system delivery, but it can be very beneficial to some. So make sure you become and you remain one of these insured Canadians and that the health, whether it be OHIP in Ontario or MCP here, gets the bill and not you. So the federal government's going to crack down on it because these companies, they saw the loophole and they're jumping right through it with fists full of dollars. Ottawa also talking about some of the private offerings that are very real, and there's lots of private oper- offerings in healthcare. But you know, this is really very different than in years past, where there would be some vague references to be very wary of privatization and all that stuff. But with the shortages and the backlogs and the wait times, look, I don't blame you. If you had $25,000 burning a hole in your pocket and you've been waiting 18 months for a hip replacement and, you know, the pain continues and worsens, and then you have maybe go to the Duval Clinic in Quebec to pay for it, cash on the barrel head, and get your procedure. So that's all fine and dandy. 
But, you know, we have to talk about where this ends and the ups and the downs. Like one fellow who's quoted in the news story says, I don't feel like I jumped the queue. I feel like I got out of the queue. And so the person behind me now jumps up one patient further. Fine. But this is just shuffling around healthcare professionals. Let's talk about surgeons in particular doing these hip and knee replacements and their surgical staff or team. So these surgeons, generally speaking, probably came directly from the public system for a variety of reasons. So it doesn't really help anything if, you know, it's great for someone who can pay for those surgeries, but for the rest of us who don't have $25,000 to get a knee replaced, we continue to wait while those doctors who would have been potentially operating at the Health Sciences Center are now at a private clinic. So there's going to be more and more talk about these issues because Canadians are waiting and the shortages are real. It feels like a potentially reasonable idea. But there's lots of complicating factors to more and more of these hip and knee replacements. The volume of patients being seen at the Duval Clinic in Laval, Quebec, has jumped exponentially in just the last couple of years. So if you want to take it on, I think that's an interesting and an important topic. All right. I see there's a class action lawsuit that will proceed in British Columbia regarding victims of sexual assault at the hands of Christian brothers. And there's a Mount Cashel connection. There's one notorious criminal. His name is uh, Edwards. Is it? Uh, Edward English. So he confessed. Uh, to abusing boys at Mount Cashel, and then he was just shuffled to another province. The parents of the children being taught by this scumbag were not told of his past. You know, there was a cover-up here with that. We're all familiar with the Mount Cashel story. But just imagine how vile to know that this one guy who's confessed to sexually abusing children was moved to another province in another school, and the parents, unbeknownst to them, they had a predator, a pedophile, in the ranks of the teachers that they were going to entrust the safety of their children with. Maddening story. So they are going to proceed with this class action lawsuit. And we know this has happened more often than not with the shuffling of criminals to uh, other schools or other parishes, and it's just dreadful. Uh, quick, well, this, I guess on the 12th, yes, the 12th is the 14th anniversary of Cougar, four, Cougar Flight 491. And we know the story. 17 of 18 aboard lost her life that day. I will never forget it because when we were working on Out of the Fog, we didn't go to news conferences and stuff. That's just not how the show operated. But that day, I did. And it seared into my memory. I see Robert Decker, the lone survivor, around every now and then. Fine fella. So that anniversary comes up uh, this weekend on the 12th. There will indeed be a service scheduled for 7 p.m. Sunday at the Elm Pentecostal Tabernacle. Opportunity for family, friends, loved ones to come together. And then you wonder about the complications of just how far from shore the Beta Nord Project is and getting people in and out. So just to end on a positive note, why not? Because that was pretty dramatic. I want to give one more shout-out to uh, Allie Boyd, Allison Boyd. She's a member of the Portugal Cove St. Phillips Lions Club, and she's created this program called Little Lions. There's another story in the news today, and it's the cutest little baby. So what happens is the parents, a couple times a week, they pack up their babies or their toddlers, and they go to a senior's home. So you can only imagine the glee and the delight of the senior residents when they get a visit from the little babies, right? And as it goes on to say in the story, hopefully there's not too much crying. Hopefully it's dominated by uh, smiles and giggles and laughs and tickles and reading and singing and all the rest of it. So way to go, Alison Boyd. And apparently it's expanding beyond this region like it should. So good on her and everyone participating in the little lines. Oh, just a quick note. Uh, this is on the business front. So there's a massive conference in Texas called the Global Energy Conference. Various provinces are there. Alberta, Ontario, Quebec. So... I don't know if we have a representative there, but, you know, even if we just focus in on, on energy regarding critical minerals, we've put millions of dollars in the hands of junior, junior mining companies. We know we have 
all of the elements for all of those batteries to be constructed so we can talk about it as a supply chain issue or what have you because we can create one here but that capital investment people will be gobbling that up do we have someone at the global energy conference in texas let's see if we can find out from the minister's office we're on twitter we're vocm open line follow us there email address is open line at vocm.com when we come back let's have a great show we're going to talk with wade smith from smith's ambulance service and then a story we mentioned yesterday regarding crown lands and the problems facing one potential farming operation adam furlong is also there he's the owner of bloomfield farm outport acres don't go away Weekday mornings from 5.30 to 9. Jumpstart your day with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. Newsmakers, traffic, weather, and more during your VOCM Morning Show. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Very quickly, uh, <laughs> I was really pleased to get a few athletic nods here about who you think the best athlete is. And, of course, I would very likely omit many names. Uh, Ryan Boland, fine player himself. He says, how about a softballer? You know, eight-time national champions. Okay, so let's throw a few softballers out there. Colin Abbott, any of the Bolands, Malali, Ezekiel's, Ross Crocker, Gossi, Ward Goss, I don't know, you tell me. All right, let's begin this morning with the owner of uh, uh, Smith's Ambulance Services. That's Wade Smith. Good morning, Wade. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Welcome to the show. Thanks for making time. Uh, yes, sure. <laughs> so it's really staggering to read quotes from you saying, right now we don't know why this is happening. No one has told us anything. Nobody, nobody has met with us to try to resolve this. It all go ba- goes back, so says Eastern Health and the Department, for your operation to refuse to uh, respond to a mutual aid call. What happened there? Well, th- uh, we did respond to the call, and I knew nothing about it until I got a letter from Eastern Health on the 17th saying we breached your contract. The letter in itself uh, was uh, breached the contract because we have what's called a um, non-compliance procedure, which is clearly written out from Clause 56 right up to 70, which is the Minister of Review. So we went back and I said, well, like, how did we breach it? And uh, as of today, not no one in the Department of Health or Eastern Health has met with us, sat down to discuss anything, or even give us any background information other than the fact that you didn't respond to a call. And uh, that is untrue. I, when uh, in the uh, media briefing yesterday with CBC, I had the two employees. One was uh, on the phone, and the other because he had a doctor's appointment. The other lady was there. The dispatcher was there. I showed him all the paperwork. We did respond to the call in St. River. And when we got the call, we sent an ambulance that was just finishing up a call in Port of Grave. They were only about five minutes from the scene. We sent them transported the patient to uh, Carmen General Hospital. Didn't know nothing else about it until I got this letter that we that um, we refused to respond. Then, you know, it gets further confusing for me when another allegation stems back some 13 months in February of 2022 about not reply, responding to a call as well. But you talk about some issues there regarding occupational health and safety. What happened that day? That was in, actually, that was uh, February the 4th. Uh, that, uh, this year, there was uh, what had happened that night, and we had a call come in because MCC had taken over our dispatch um, back in June. This was one of the requirements, and we've been trying to work with Eastern Health to get answers, even our lawyer, with multiple letters, and we're just not, we weren't getting anything. Well, anyway, what happened that night, um, there was a call come in shortly after 4 o'clock in the evening. Uh, plows had been taken off the road, I think, sometime prior to that because of the wind gust and the hot and snow, and it was really freezing cold. And So that night when the call came in, the calls dropped three times. We had three or four power bumps. So uh, the paramedic who was next out went in and got a landline, 
and took the call from MCC when they called back. And when she took the calls, they uh, went to go on the call. We lost total power in the building. And uh, when that happened, they uh, they went out because we have a procedure and we have uh, OHS instructions on how that has to be done. So two people went out, uh, started the generator, uh, hooked up the, the uh, engaged the line going into the building. This was a new system we had just installed in the end of October, and uh, it wouldn't work. We couldn't get the doors open. So anyway, they went back out, went through the procedure again, and it failed. So they called me, and I went through the procedure with them, and they said they were trying to get on a call. And so we went through the procedure again, and everything, nothing would work. So Rudy Mercer, he's my lead hand. Uh, he lives about 250 feet from the base. He's 30 years in this business, drives back and forth there for a number of years. He left his house in a Dodge Ram 4x4. He stopped three times before he got to the base because he couldn't see where he was going. He went out, went through the whole procedure again, and he went and got the meter to check and see where if the power was going into the building. The generator was started, power was coming out, no power going to the building. So then they started running cords to get, and crawling up on top of ambulances uh, to plug in the uh, the drives on top and uh, to open up the doors. So while that was all going on, I notified Eastern Health that uh, we were having difficulty responding. And that's where the call got even confusing because they thought I was calling about a transfer. And I said, I'd never authorized no routine transfer this hour in the night in this storm. And when they came back on the line, they said, oh, the brother just called back. Uh, he says he can bring him down to the road. I said, well, I don't know when we're going to get out. But I said, if he's if he at, at some point, if he can get to the road and he's got a four-wheel drive, I said, I don't know how long it's going to take us to get there. He's probably better off going down to the hospital or, or, or something like that, you know, that because um, – Everything was just going wrong. So anyway, at the end of the day, um, when they were getting ready to get to, to try to get the doors open, uh, the paramedic called me. She said, "Wait, we, it's not safe to go." She said, "I can't see the uh, the middle road, and I think our our building is about maybe 50 feet back from the road before it actually hits the doors." And she couldn't see she couldn't see the the road from the door. That's how bad it was, and winds were whipping up. So we had four people out trying to get the everything going. The road conditions itself wasn't the issue. So normally we would call for a plow, but that wasn't wasn't the issue at this point. And even if we did, we wouldn't we wouldn't have got a plow. There's just no way to get it. You couldn't see, and we and of course endangering other people. So anyway, uh, at the end of the day, uh, rolled up a report, went back into Michelle Breen and Eastern Health, and uh, described what was happening. And she came out and said, no. She said, uh, your EMS, you have, you got no right to uh, refuse to respond, and you breached your contract. And now we have uh, Occupational Health and Safety is actually doing a full review on, on and uh, he's and under the legislation, yes, they have every right to refuse. And if they had to go out that night, I would have been the one that was on the hook because I they I they could kill two people, kill the patient, and we also had a, a student on with us. Um, so, I mean, that's, you, you, can't, you can't do that kind of stuff, right? Wade, I believe you and your wife have been operating uh, Smith's Ambulance Services since 1996, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, we have, Patty, yes. How many times, or have you had compliance issues with Eastern Health since 96? If so, how many do you think? Uh, we've, uh, w- like any other operation, we've called in all people like the ambulance took the line to get there. We've, we've had a couple of those over the years, and we went back we, and uh, we checked our call logs. We have AVLs, which um, vehicle locators in our ambulance, which time every call, and we went back to that myself and lead hand. 
and we've timed these calls out and and go back and say, you know, no, we were only 10 minutes getting here. Here's the call logs. Here's the AVL. Here's the information. And we got that there also for insurance purposes as well for uh, in case of accidents and things because all that's recorded on the AVL. And um, that was uh, that was all done and went back and yeah, it was it was uh, valid. It was a valid. It was a valid reason. That uh, and the times that we got there were valid, and it showed that the uh, information that was given to Eastern Health by the caller was wrong. And we've done it on uh, a number of occasions. Uh, but since 1996, Patty, this is the first time I've ever been put in a position like this. No one has ever had any any issues with Smith's ambulance. I've been uh, writing contracts in this province with with the ambulance service for years. We were the, one of the first people in this province to ever have medical control. We were the first uh, private service to ever put a defibrillator on the ambulance. We were one besides uh, myself and another operator to put our paramedic level twos back in the day on the ambulance. And I've committed nothing on 100% uh, body and soul to this whole industry and the people we served. We've done pack to back for Salvation Army. I've had crews out. Uh, our crews love to work with, the, with this service. And unfortunately, I was told after the meeting yesterday that after next week, I've got about eight of my paramedics that are actually going to the mainland. They won't. Uh, if this is not resolved within the next week, they're all gone. How big an impact does that have on the ground ambulance service period? Because I've heard so many stories of paramedics leaving for a variety of reasons, but at the end of the day, they left. What does this mean if eight paramedics leave next week? It's devastating, Patty. Uh, you know, and I, I don't know where to turn with this. I mean. We're losing medics, and there's so much red tape for us to try to get uh, people and get staff. I mean, just just last year when, when Minister Hagee said we're going to give 18 paramedics now to to St. John's and uh, three ambulances. I mean, that's fine, and I don't I don't fault the people for having the need that level of coverage. But that level of coverage came from us. I lost six paramedics in two years, and, and we're still trying to recover. Like it's not, uh, government's responsible for training, and right now. Even though they're responsible for training, and that is that is they're they're the ones that's supposed to be putting the people in place. Our fear right now, and what we're looking at, there's nobody going into our schools. There's no young people going to go into the business. And when they're seeing this kind of thing that's happening, they're not there. Like I got a paramedic that's been there for 30 years with me. He lost his job Thursday night. I we were sat down to supper. I had a lady come to my door, and my wife said, "You know, this is someone to come and pay a bill." I said, well, you know, what else can you do? And he probably just got off of work, and they want to pay. So he could usually come to my house, right? So anyway, she says, Wade's made home. And she said, yes, he got a bit of a call, so he can't come to the door. Well, she said, just give him this letter and tell him to serve. And when I opened it, I was devastated. 20 minutes to 6, and we were shut down at 6 o'clock. And your employees found out on Facebook before you had a chance yeah, to tell them. Yeah, but Amazing. by the time I got to the base, they already knew. They wrote, a lot of them were crying. They were devastated. They all lost their jobs. They didn't know what was going on. They knew they knew about the calls, and they knew that we responded. And for the for the minister to get on and make the the, the statement that Smith didn't respond, like he didn't sit down. He he never finished his review. He started that review on January the 13th. He engaged two officers with the Health and Community Services, who we sat down and met with on the, the 10th of February at 11:30 in the day. The review was not completed, and still now this is the kind of action that he took. And Eastern Health uh, plays a, a, a big part in this because they never give us information. They never disclose any information, would never sit down and talk to us or even try to work this out. 
So right now, um, we're losing paramedics. Our our healthcare system's in such bad shape. It's it's in a crisis, and now we're losing all these young people. Like we're not going to recover from this. this and this, for people to think that we are, it's not going to happen. So the, right now, the only thing that I can do, and one thing that I'm asking right now, is that I'm asking the premier of this province to give me a chance. Please sit down and talk to me. Give me the time. Just try to get these young people to stay in the province, put this service back, and let's work for the procedure. Like, if you've got this agreement is signed under Her Majesty the Queen as the Minister of Health and Community Services, Eastern Health for me as the RHA, and Smith Samuels. This is a legal binding document. Why would anybody want to sign another contract in this province if this one can't be upheld? Why would any ambulance service or operator want to sign another contract if this is kind of thing that's going to happen. Wade, I appreciate the time. When you have an update uh, available, please do get back in touch with us. Uh, hoping the, the best for your business, for you, your wife, and all your employees because the ambulance issue across the province, uh, in every region, there are pervasive problems, and we can't allow your operation and all those paramedics to possibly be gone this time next week. I appreciate your time this morning, Wade. Patty and I will get back to you as soon as I have an update. Thank you very much for your time. I appreciate it. Take care. Okay, bye. Bye-bye. It's Wade Smith from Smith's Ambulance Service. You know, at the very least, an opportunity to talk through it with uh, the Regional Health Authority, being Eastern Health in this case, and the Minister, Andrew, the Premier, sounds like a good idea to me. Because now what's happened is that there's already been several issues here in this region, and now, consequently, to cover Whitburn, we pull another ambulance and who, who knows how many paramedics to cover what needs to be covered with Smith's gone by the wayside. Wild story. Uh, let's take a break. Appreciate your patience, Adam, for long. He's the owner of Bloomfield Farm, Upport Acres. There's an issue regarding Crown Lands. We'll let Adam explain it right after this. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number three. Say good morning to the owner of Bloomfield Farm Outport Acres. That's Adam Furlong. Good morning, Adam. You're on the air. Morning, Pat. How are you this morning? Not too bad. How about you? Um, not bad, considering... Yeah, there's a lot to get to here. So let's go back to the so-called beginning here. You were working in the oil industry for about a decade. Talk us through the decision to move away from that and into farming. Um, yeah, so I, I worked on the Hebron project uh, when that was getting towed offshore and stuff. So after that was finished, I took the summer off after that, just to have a bit of a recharge the batteries after the hectic schedule that I had with that. And I basically spent the whole summer researching how to create uh, a profitable small-scale farm. Um, so at the end of the summer, I did go back to work with an engineering company, and uh, I was working with them while I built uh, my business in agriculture. And in 2020, um, I decided that you know, I, I kind of wanted to step away from the oil and gas industry and en engineering work and uh, and move towards growing my business in agriculture and, and expand upon that. So in September 2020, um, we moved from CBS, where we were living at the time, uh, back to the Bonavista Peninsula, where I'm originally from, and uh, we were looking at buying this piece of property, 2.2 uh, acres of property in Bloomfield, uh, had a house on it. So we were just going to move into the house and use the 2.2 acres to, to grow the farm. 
Did you have a family relationship with farming? Dad or granddad or someone? Um, not commercially, you know, like most families in Newfoundland, we just like grew backyard vegetables for our own use, but okay. I'm, I'm essentially a, a first generation commercial farmer. And so here you go, you've made your decision, you've got a business model in place. It's a week before you're supposed to take ownership of the property, then what? Um, I got a call from our uh, lawyer that he heard from the previous owner's lawyer. The Crown Land stepped in and said that they owned, it was like three quarters of the property. And uh, that the, the worst part was that the the boundary line that the Crown Land's records had was directly down through the middle of the house. So, I mean, the house wasn't even fully sitting on a piece of property that the previous owners owned, according to Crown Land's. So, so what? Oh, sorry. Go ahead. We, we had our house in CBS sold, so we had a closing date for that. So we kind of had to get out. So we moved out here um, with nowhere really to go and didn't know what was going to happen. And we had a, a one-year-old boy at the time. My wife was a couple months pregnant, so we were essentially homeless and didn't know what was going to happen. And uh, we lived for two weeks in my in-laws' camper while we tried to figure out what we were going to do next. Um, we eventually came to an agreement with the previous owners that we would rent the house from them and give them some time to try to sort out the issue with uh, with Crown Lands. And we basically rented the house from them for a year. So my wife spent her almost her entire pregnancy, you know, living in a house that we were renting with no idea what our future was going to hold. It was a pretty high-stress situation for a pregnant woman to be in, and it, it was pretty stressful for our entire family. No doubt, and I remember reading in the story that just about every single day since this all began, you've had some Crown Land-related matter on your mind. The province did make you an offer. What was it? Um, yeah, so after over two years of trying to get a response from the minister's office and receiving literally nothing, no response whatsoever for over two years, I received uh, an unannounced phone call from Minister Bragg. Um, so I couldn't even really prepare for a conversation with him. He, the conversation within the first 30 seconds, it was obvious to me that he already had his mind made up on what the way forward was going to be. He was not open-minded at all to hear anything that I had to say. And at the end of the conversation, he essentially said that um, I could apply for an agricultural lease on the property, even though there's no access to the property. So in a typical situation, that would not get approved. Um, so he said that I could apply for an agricultural lease on the property, but because there's no access, I would need to get a legal easement drawn up, giving the Crown uh, right away across my legally owned property. So essentially, you know, through my driveway and my backyard to access that piece of land so that if I retired or went out of business or whatever, then they've got an agricultural piece of land that has access to it via my property. What does it look like inside? Like, What kind of farming are you doing today, and how does it line up with what was your five-year plan, you know, given the fact that you created the plan overthinking that you'd have the full 2.2 acres? So how does it all line up? Um, well, my original plan would have been by now to have um, four greenhouses in operation as well as um, uh, indoor microgreens grow operation that I currently do. And I would have had uh, approximately 1.5 acres of field space in production right now to grow crops outdoors. 
um, right now because of all these issues. Um, I have the indoor microgreen grow space that I'm doing, you know, 50 to 60 pounds of microgreens a week on average. And I have two uh, 16-foot by 100-foot long greenhouses that I was just barely able to fit on the property that they agreed to sell. And uh, that's it. I, I, you know, I'm, I'm. The greenhouses are pushed right up to the edge of our property, and there's, there's nothing, there's no extra room for me to do any further expansion. So I'm basically two and a half years into my five-year business plan, and I've barely been able to do what I had planned to do in the first year. So you can't even buy crown land for agriculture. You can lease crown land. So is there any opportunity for simply to be rectified with the lease agreement, or? If this persists the way it is today, how long can you actually exist as Bloomfield Farm before it's just unmanageable and unprofitable and you're just sinking? Um, so I can I can take the agricultural lease that they offered me if I'm willing to give up legal right to my own property, which I'm not going to do. Sure. So nobody can ever use that land for anything according to their own regulations. It's inaccessible. So it'll just sit there growing spruce trees for the next 500 years. Um I'm not going to give up on my business, so I don't know. I'll, 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 it's, it's all still kind of up in the air right now, but I'm I'm looking at a couple different options of uh, other pieces of land that are nearby, or maybe some family land that I have that's you know 30, 40 minutes away from here. But uh, yeah, like not, nothing is as it should have been when I when I moved here and, and made a really comprehensive business plan for what I was going to do when I came here. And uh, the like, as far as I'm concerned, the government are making an agricultural issue out of this. I mean, there there's many aspects of the situation that include issues with agriculture, and those issues need to be addressed. And I'm more than happy to talk about them. But at its core, this whole situation is a crown lands issue. The whole situation wouldn't even exist if the changes to the Lands Act of 1977 never happened. I would have purchased this land in a private sale two and a half years ago, as I originally planned to do. And yesterday, the Department of Fisheries, Forestry, and Agriculture released a statement. And in that statement, they hold the stance that if a farmer wants to own farmland, they always have the option to purchase land from private landowners. <laughs> I mean, the, the statement is, is ridiculous. You know, that's exactly what I was trying to do. I was in the process of doing that when the crime stepped in and stopped me. So, I mean, I would have done exactly what they say I should have done if they didn't cause this issue in the first place. Yeah, the circular firing squad. Oh, my. Adam, I appreciate the time. Anything else you'd like to add this morning? Yeah, um, I mean, there's a lot to get to. It's, it's been two and a half years of my life, so I might call back in again next week to discuss a little more. But um, a, a point that I wanted to make is that we do a lot of talk about outcomes when it's at, when we come to health care in the province. I believe that everything the government does should be held to a standard of outcomes. If they make a decision or create a policy, what is their intended outcome and what is the real-world outcome? And in my scenario, the facts are the facts, and it's indisputable. They've fought tooth and nail for years to maintain control of one acre of inaccessible land that has no value. They've not produced any positive outcomes for themselves, the province, the residents of the province, uh, business in the province. They've cost an elderly couple, the previous owners of this property, over $50,000 out of their retirement. They've cost a young family two and a half years of progress in their life. They've crippled a young entrepreneur from expanding a business in sustainable agriculture, and they've caused a great deal of mental 
emotional and financial stress on my family and I'm sure on the previous owners as well. That's it. There's nothing more and nothing less here. Adam, I look forward to our next conversation. Hopefully there's a positive outcome here because I think you make a terrific point about uh, outcomes perceived and what the reality is on the ground. So what's government actually trying to accomplish here with this particular policy? Uh, Good to have you on, Adam. Thanks for your time, Patty. Take good care. Bye-bye. You too. Adam Furlong, the owner of Bloomfield Farm, Outport Acres. What an unnecessary mess that is. Let's go to line number four. Al, you're on the air. Hello. How are you, Patty? Okay, Al, you? I heard all day, Paddy. Tis looks a little bit wintry. Yes, but Paddy, I can't get a wink of sleep here in the night time. What's going on? The road is so bad. Right where I live, right across the road. What does the bad road have to do with you getting a bit of sleep? What's a happening? Study, study cars going back and forth. Bang, bang, bang all night long. Study bang and trailers behind them. You can't get a, a wink of sleep. And across the road where I live, there's a, a few sick, sick people. Down there. They hears it all. So the bangs are so loud because they're all hitting the same potholes? Is that what's going no, on? it's not potholes. It's the road is tore up. The plow, the plow got them all tore up, Paddy. Okay. And it. And I want to be done bad. It was this, about, about two or three years I'd like it. And no one won't come down to fix it. But if poor Kevin Parsons was alive, it'd be all done. God love his soul. Poor old Kevin is not very well, I don't think. No, uh, he's not dead. No. No, 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 he's not. Not. I know that he's having some health concerns. That's yeah, yeah, he's a nice man, but... Yeah, I've known Kevin a long time. Um, and Paddy, uh, this groceries, it's now that's going up. And, uh, and the gas is going up. That's going up and up, down and down, up and up and down and down. Yeah, it's hard to keep track of it. Uh, the yeah, issue regarding yeah. groceries... Uh, I think, I think there, uh, there's a little bunch of children running all this stuff about the gas and this. They're like little children. It's hard to make heads or tails out of uh, the fluctuation in prices. I'll give you that. And talk about groceries. The Bank of Canada is even talking about hiking interest rates again to have some sort of impact on the price of groceries. I don't really understand how that works. but Just just wait now the budget, Paddy, is coming up again. It is. They got everything gone up again. You know something, my yeah. thinking? What's that? The Liberal government is not going to get in no more down this way. You don't think? No, they won't get in no more because people are not saying nothing. They're only just taking it all aboard only when the elections comes up. And that's not very long more, another year or two. And yeah, that, that's right. I mean, they, the PCs certainly feel like they have a chance. That's the yeah. sentiment I get from uh, them when I talk with anybody, whether it be a supporter or, or a politician. I'll appreciate the time. Hopefully yeah. you can get nice. some sleep. Put some earplugs nice. in. Nice, <laughs> nice talk to you, Freddie. You too, Al. All right, then. All, all the best. All right. Bye-bye. Uh, very quickly before we go to the break, I really meant to talk about it off the top, but good luck to all the participants at the... Uh, Special Olympics Winter Games, which is taking place in Grand Falls, Windsor at this very moment. So really should have brought that up because it's one of my favorite mottos in sports. Uh, let me win. If I cannot win, let me be brave in the attempt. I love that. And also the best athletes ever. Someone wants to say the Faulkners. Fair enough. When we come back from the break, we're going to be speaking with Hubert Shaw. He's the Teamsters a local 855 business manager about an update for the relationship between his group and fewer's ambassadors. Don't go away. Weekday mornings from 5.30 to 9. Jumpstart your day with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. Newsmakers, traffic, weather, and more during your VOCM Morning Show. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go line number one. Say good morning to the business manager at the Teamsters Local 855. That's Hubert Dog. Good morning, Hubert. You're on the air. 
Good morning, Patty. It's a great Friday for sure. It's, it's great. It's Friday. <laughs> Huber, what's the update? Where are we with fewers? Uh, unfortunately, I don't have any, any update for the fewer situation. We're pretty much in the same situation that we were in prior to that. I wanted to call in this morning because I'm absolutely disillusioned by our government and, you know, the incidents that have happened this week. Um, yeah, I've been, I, I got home last night. I was traveling around speaking to our members in, in the different groups around the province. And, uh, you know, they're, they're all concerned. They're confused. We don't have any understanding of what's going on. And if anything, the government has created more confusion and more chaos in our system. How so? Um, well, let's, you know, we'll go back to the, you know, the pulling in the animals out the Smiths. Yeah. I mean, you know, but I don't know what happened there. I mean, you know, again, you know, it's all supposed to be transparent. You know, if, you know, you just had Wade Smith on and, you know, from his point of view, he doesn't understand how it got to this situation. I, I can speak from my own personal experiences when we brought forth issues with the way ambulances have been operating and whatever else. Like the government has told us that even though they have this contract, uh, there's no enforcement means to it. Yet then we turn around this week and we see, you know, a situation where we have now 13 paramedics who are out of work through no fault of their own as a knee-jerk reaction. And then, you know, we, we listened to Minister Osborne uh, Wednesday, came on your show, you know, had a great announcement for the Southern Shore area of the Avalon. We're going to put a rapid response vehicle there to increase response times. One vehicle for the distance between Trapassi and Bay Bulls, that's, that's, that's not even conceivable. I mean, you know, people are upset now that we're waiting on an ambulance to come into these areas from neighboring communities and whatever else in the length of time that it takes. I mean, this rapid response vehicle, if you know, heaven forbid, there's not an ambulance available in Trapassi, and that vehicle is up in, uh, you know, mobile, and this call comes in. By the time that rapid response vehicle gets there, the ambulance is going to be there. It's going to be of no benefit to the people unless they actually just, you know, by pure coincidence and luck, when the call comes in, that vehicle is in that community. That's that's not a that's not a tangible or reasonable solution to this problem, you know. And then the minister goes on then to say that uh, you know causing chaos down in the uh, in the Fairland district of saying that Mr. Fiorco didn't notice two and a half months ago he's pulling the annual service. Only first to point out yesterday. No, he has. He's never. He hasn't put in notice. He has no intent of, of pulling out of that annual service right now. We recognize the staffing issues, and I mean, Mr. Fior has reached out to the to the union to try to you know look at options to explore to improve the staffing in the area, which I will say is the first time that he's done. So I mean, he is taking the matter very seriously and does want to live up to his commitment to that area. So. You know, the government seemed all right confident, in, you know, that the health accord would really fix all these problems. But now we're starting to see that, you know, we're not moving towards implementing the health accord. We're doing knee-jerk reactions to respond to situations that are occurring. And it, it's, not, it's not transparent. We really don't have an understanding of why these things have to happen. As it pertains to Smith's employees, some 13 paramedics, you know— Shouldn't they be able to find a job here? We've been talking about paramedics leaving and some staffing shortages right across the entire gamut of healthcare. Shouldn't there be a job for these 13 paramedics somewhere working for someone? I can guarantee you that the job is there for. But where is these paramedics' incentive to continue on? You know, like the, the Mrs. McGraw that you, you made mention of, how you had on your show yesterday, and I didn't get the opportunity to listen to her, and I apologize for that, but, you know. She wants to go to Nova Scotia now. She wants to go somewhere where there's stability. She wants to know when she goes in there, this is her job. This is what she's going to be working for. This is how long she's going to be working. And she, she's going to be able to form her life around that. We don't have that in this province. You know?
here, you know, she was working away perfectly fine, actually on duty today. That you know, we got a Facebook message from Eastern Health. You're no longer, so you know, you're no, you're no longer the service provider. I mean, that's 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 not even good human decency. I mean, you, you, you think you would contact the people who are going to be affected before you let the rest of the world know? hundred percent. So, what would it take for that sort of stability? So maybe I'll start with this. How do they operate in Nova Scotia? Is all of the ambulance service uh, public, or is there the disconnect like we have here, some public, some private? How does it work in Nova Scotia? In Nova Scotia, it, the, the service itself belongs to the provincial government, but the administration of that and the human resources of that service is, is uh, tendered out to a private company. So like the, the province of Nova Scotia owns the ambulances, owns all the infrastructure, and you know, but the, the, the Medivy Blue Cross who runs the runs the ambulance service for the province of Nova Scotia, and they do the same thing in PEI, and they do the same thing in New Brunswick. So it's, the government still owns the assets. The government still has the responsibility for providing these services, but a private company does the administration, sets up the schedules, makes sure that the members are in, in, in the areas that they need to be in. They look at call volumes and adjust, adjust medics accordingly. And uh, you know that's and it's 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 a very it's a very big service, but uh, you know of course like everything you're going to have your hiccups. But as as a general model, it seems to work really well for for these these provinces where that's the current system that they're using. Well, all I know is that uh, since I've been in this chair for the last oh I'm going to say six seven years, we've been talking about what's coming, whether it be you know trying to figure out how the ambulance service is going to be delivered here, whether it be on the ground or in the air, and we're no further ahead. In fact, I would suggest we're a few steps back. Yeah, and you know, and I'm really concerned, and it's a big concern that's come forward from my members too, because I mean, you know, we we addressed this when we did our presentation to the health record. You know, in ten years' time, we're supposed to have ACPs on every ambulance in this province. As it stands right now today, Patty, we're running about 54% of the emergency service personnel in this province are EMRs. We have about 44% that are PCPs. That's, you know, we can't, we can't even put a PCP on every ambulance in this province. And I mean, you know, we're, we're working towards getting ACPs. We need to fix and stabilize the system that we have now before we look at advancing it and making it more and more uh, um, advanced driven. Just so uh, people understand the acronyms, I think the PCP is a primary care paramedic, the ACP is advanced care paramedic? Uh, yes, sorry. That's no. what that means? Okay. Uh, I'll just bounce this off. Someone made an interesting suggestion yesterday. You know, when people are making up their own mind as to whether or not, for instance, up the southern shore, when people didn't know that the operator operation of the ambulance was stalled, you know, there's an AVL, like Wade Smith talked about, a locator, a GPS, or an AVL on the ambulances. You know, if I wanted to see where a snowplow was this morning in the city of St. John's, I can go on the app and I can see where all the plows are to anticipate when they'll hit my street. Do you think it would be helpful if paramedics had that same offering to the public? So, for instance, if I'm in Trapassi or I'm in Cape Royal and the ambulance isn't coming, but it's coming from St. John's, and I think, well, I can't wait an hour and a half, I'm going to just hop in the car, or I'm going to drive my loved one for care. Do you think that would be helpful at all as people try to navigate through these tricky waters? It would from from you know knowing knowing where that ambulance is available, and I mean you know you know the, the you know MCC or the medical control center that Wade Smith spoke about does know where every ambulance in this province is at any given time. So I mean access to that information I don't think would be a big issue. My concern comes is when your 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 loved ones needs interventions or needs treatment that that paramedic test that they should be providing to you on route to the hospital, you know, to prepare you for the better care when you get to the hospital. And I, I often use the story myself, like uh, my grandfather died uh, back in the 70s. 
And, I mean, we didn't have the advanced system that we have now, but we did have emergency responders. We did have ambulances available. And my family made the decision to throw him in the car. And, you know, we didn't have, we didn't have uh, you know, the manuals access highway or anything like that. So it was a straight trip from, from Session Bay South, straight out Topsail Road, right to downtown St. John's to get to St. Clair's. And, unfortunately, he died en route. And, you know, you know, we may not be able to prevent that, but we do have means that we can do to, you know, keep you in the best shape possible so we can get you to the facilities to, that can provide that definitive care. And, I mean, I've, I've heard stories there, you know, the people are saying that they want to put people in their cars and go meet the ambulance. There's, all, you know, there's, there's, there's complications and hassles that, and unnecessary delays that can be caused by doing that also. Fair enough. I do firmly believe that calling an ambulance and waiting for that ambulance at a fixed point is your best option in a true emergency situation. I appreciate the time this morning, Hubert. Thanks a lot. Thank you very much. Take care. Take care. Bye-bye. Hubert Dawes, the business manager, Teamsters Local, 855. Uh, Before we get to the news break, another great athlete being uh, rung in here, Paula Kelly, swimmer. Back in the 70s in her heyday, she actually had a chance to represent Canada at the 1980 Moscow Olympics, but of course we boycotted. Paula Kelly, another great. Let's take a break. When we come back, we'll talk about violence in schools. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Say good morning to Dr. Jennifer Donner from Munn School of Pharmacy. Uh, Dr. Donner, you're on the air. Oh, good morning, Patty. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me on the show. <laughs> uh, great to have you on. So you've got a uh, policy symposium coming up soon. What's it about? Absolutely. So our uh, policy research team, we go by CHIRP. We've been working on a cannabis policy evaluation over the past three years. So we've been funded by the Canadian Centre on Substance Use and Addiction to evaluate specifically provincial policies and regulations. And so now we're coming to the end of that project. We've done a number of different research studies to help bring clarity to issues that were identified by stakeholders and members of the public. So we're hosting the symposium to just bring people together, share our findings, um, engage in conversations, and then hopefully make recommendations about how we can move forward. So since cannabis has been legalized, there was lots of worries, and still some Canadians don't accept the fact that it has been legalized here. You know, people are worried about more and more people uh, getting behind the wheel under the influence, talking about more and more youth. When the data that I've seen, and you know much more about than I do, is that the real spike in cannabis use has been amongst seniors, or 55-plus. What have we learned about the impact of legalized cannabis since that day? Well, I mean, there's there's lots of impacts, and that's for sure. And driving is a really important issue. I think as much as, you know, the different governments and agencies have tried to educate the public on the dangers of driving, um, there's still ways we have to go. We did a lot of work with youth talking about the impact of legalization, legalization on them. And one thing they did identify is how normal it is to drive under the influence of cannabis, and not only just cars, but recreational vehicles, ATVs, boats, and things like that. So I think um, there is some concerning behaviors out there. We do need to do a lot more to educate the pub- public with respect to that particular issue. Um, but I think one of the biggest gaps we identified, especially when we're talking with youth and the impact on them, is that they don't feel prepared to make informed decisions. So there's a real lack of education within the school systems to help talk about cannabis, and not just cannabis, most substances, including alcohol, and we know how much of a problem alcohol is among youth. Um, So they're really not getting the education they need to make informed choices. So that's another big project we have coming up. We're actually launching it at our symposium. It's a new education strategy for grades 4 to 12 to talk about substance use um, in a harm reduction manner. 
So the programs that are currently in place in school, like the D.A.R.E. program, for instance, what about it needs to be enhanced? And how do we talk about education? Because, you know, from where I sit, I think people understand what are some of the risks. So how do we change the messaging? Well, I guess the thing with the D.A.R.E. program is that it's really focused on one age group. It's grade six only. And traditionally, it's been created as in like an abstinence-based approach. So it's all about, you know, don't do drugs, which is a very positive message. Um, we certainly don't want to encourage drug use, but we also need to understand and reflect on the fact that many youth are going to engage in these activities, whether we want them to or not. And having the knowledge to make safe choices is really important. And so that's why we want to develop a harm reduction education program and not only focus it on one age group, but make sure they're getting relevant information to their age right from grade four to grade 12 when they graduate. Okay. So, again, so if we broaden out the, the grade, uh, grade levels that get attended to, once again, what is it that we tell them? Because sometimes there's a difference between educating and scaring. Because one, pr- one approach works, the other kind of maybe puts people's back up and they tune it out. So how do we strike that balance? Because I think that's an important conversation. If people go in, whether it be your mom or dad or someone at Memorial University or anywhere, if it's trying to scare them straight, it probably doesn't have the appreciable positive outcome where just an educational approach takes place. How do you strike the balance? Absolutely. I mean, the evidence definitely shows that harm reduction strategies are the way to kind of make an impact on youth. And so we just need to have open, honest conversations um, with them and make sure that they have a comfortable environment to have these conversations and people that they can trust. Um, And just, you know, the language we use is also so important. So I think historically, you know, focusing on this abstinence-based approach, this don't do drugs, you know, people who use drugs are druggies, you know, this language creates stigma and it doesn't help the youth who are maybe, who have experienced, you know, using substances, you know, that sets them on a, on a, on a spiral because they're being, you know, stigmatized by their peers and it just doesn't help them get out of that situation. So I think we need to, you know, tackle stigma, have open conversations, and hopefully that'll, um, you know, help youth make more informed choices. When we talk about cannabis use, you know, there's always going to be this uh, age-old debate about gateway, and it's an entry-level drug, and, you know, it can be used in a safe fashion. I mean, does any of your work look at that? Because I think it's been rebuffed fairly well over the years that just because you use cannabis doesn't mean you're going to end up with a needle in your arm. So what do we know about that? No, I mean, I think I think you're right about that. I think, um, you know, cannabis is not the gateway drug that we, we often um, thought it was. That is not an aspect we specifically looked at in our own research, so I don't want to speak too much on that issue. Okay. But, um, you know, I, I think you are right, though, on that. So who's uh, eligible to come and join you at the symposium? Is it throwing the doors open to all hands? No, so we do have limited capacity. We are we do have a number of stakeholders present. So we have, you know, you know, representations from law enforcement, cannabis retailers, decision makers, educators, health professionals, um, certainly our researchers and our research team. And we also have members um, space for some members of the public, including youth. And so right now we're just trying to fill up kind of the last few seats. We want to make sure we have a, a decent representation of the public to share their opinions. Um, so, yeah, we're just looking to maybe get five or five or so uh, members of the public to join us that day and, and have a conversation. Is there, is there going to be a virtual component to this? So that's a great question. So we are hoping um, that there will be a virtual option. There's going to be roundtables, so even that's a bit limited because we need to make sure we have facilitators to facilitate the conversations with the virtual attendees. 
Um, but yes, if people from other parts of the provinces are interested in connecting, uh, we will have that option available to you. This just popped in my mind. Uh, when we talk about safe use, we know that the developing mind, about 90% of it is done by the time we hit the age of five. So is there a different impact on different age groups regarding safe use? Like, for instance, is there a relationship between cannabis use and things like uh, dementia or Alzheimer's? Is there a concern that would be more focused on youth who are still developing their mind and their bodies? So the biggest concern is mostly around, um, you know, psychiatric issues like psychosis and things like that. I mean, that's a concern when people start using it at a younger age. And so they really recommend um, waiting till you're 25. So I think that's also a misconception in the public, too, because legal age is 19, but the brain's actually developing up till the age of 25. And so there can be negative developmental consequences um, the earlier you engage in cannabis use. So that's an important public health message that needs to get out there. Um, So, you know, mental health issues are one thing, but also just, you know, brain development and the ability to retain information and learn information um, can be impacted by earlier use. How do people contact you, Dr. Donnan? Um, They can reach out to us through our email. So C-A-N-E-V-A-L at mun.ca. So that's canaval at mun.ca. Appreciate your time this morning. Good luck with the symposium. Thank you so much. Take good care. Take care. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. It's Dr. Jennifer Donnan from Munn School of Pharmacy. Let's go to line number two. Harold, you're on the air. Hey, Patty. Hi, Harold. How are you today? Couldn't be better. How about you? Patty, again, I only call when I see it sad about the violence, again, that's happening in in St. John's and all around Newfoundland. And, uh, you know, it's like, God's timing to get me called to hear that lady talking about the study on addictions and everything. And, you know, some people know and some don't. I spent, you know, now it's 50 years in addiction. And, uh, you know, and to me, the government ain't doing enough. You know, I hear about all these money bent, 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 uh, spent on studies and everything. And uh, I never hear of them ever, you know, I think you should be giving people like me or someone that suffered and knows what causes the suffering, knows how to get out of the suffering. And, you know, I, I want to speak in all the schools, Patty, because I think right away we can make change by talking to the young kids. And me on TikTok, all the kids in all the schools know me right across the island. They message me all the time, Harold, when are you coming speaking in the schools? I says I reach out to people, but, you know, I tell the kids, I think the government just wants a Band-Aid you don't want to fix. And uh, I really think it's time. That lady was just on. I'd love to sit with her. And people should get me involved in speaking about this. I know who got the guns out there. I know who's selling dope. These people trust me. They don't trust the police. They don't trust the government. That's what... We take it as the government put us in jail, the government put us in addiction, the cops hate us because they lock us up. There's a lot of root causes we got to get to, and most of the people today studying in it, they really don't know what they're talking about. I've been talking about it since I gave my heart to Jesus, and I give him credit that I'm clean and sober, about what was coming to Newfoundland. And I think most people are always saying, Harold is crazy. It's happening. Before you know it, people are going to be getting shot right in front of people on the streets. Nobody's prepared to deal with this. He built a brand new mental facility, and it's not big enough for the problems that are coming, that are bigger than what they're even thinking about. We've got to get to the root cause. We need to start with the children before they're corrupted in the evil ways of the world. And weed, if the government cared, why did they ever legalize it? 
I think they legalized it myself to create a problem because it creates money again. We got to create the deal with the problem. There's no way weed should ever be legalized. I believe when the substance, the THC, is taken out of it, it helps people with Alzheimer's and is after helping children. But there's no substance in it to get you high. If we get high, we're running from our lives. And that's what's wrong with the children today. Everybody's normalizing it. It's only weed, it's on a tree. Your children are being deceived and their minds are being affected. They don't know how to love themselves. So they're going to beat on anybody and take their happiness because they think it's going to heal them. But Harold... I hope today I talked to someone and... Yeah, Paddy, go on, my The buddy. numbers are... The most recent data that I've seen, though, is one of the distinct worries is that everyone's going to be walking around stoned. Everyone's going to be walking around a zombie. But that hasn't been the outcome. There hasn't been a surge in the number of people, whether it be in the teenage group or otherwise, that are now using marijuana because it's legalized, because for some people it's just not their thing. They just don't want to be at it. Uh, I think there's bigger problems in, in society with alcohol than there is marijuana. Of course, illicit drugs are growing in problem, and these synthetic yeah. drugs are absolutely turning people into zombies, and they're yeah. not their former self. But the numbers yeah. of people using cannabis don't seem to be growing. I mean, I think some of the legalization, maybe some of it was about cash, and probably some of it was about cash. But we were yeah. clogging up courtrooms, people with petty possession charges, yeah. and that has lifelong implications on your criminal record. And, you know, is it right. something that should be holding you back? I mean, you can't go to Disney World with your children because you got busted with drugs when you're 18. You know, it's, there's there's things as to why it makes some sense in my mind. You know, now yeah. the province of British Columbia going a step further, decriminalizing uh, minor possession of some of these more, much more dangerous drugs, two and a half grams of meth and crack and heroin. Yeah. You know, there's a conversation to be had about that. But I'll give you the final word, Harold, before I take a break. Go ahead. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, I agree. Like, putting a drug addict in jail, it doesn't do nothing for the drug addict, only stunt his recovery. Most drug addicts will return to the street and they take up where they left off because it's all they know. And in prison, they don't tell them any better. So today I'm just, you know, kids, violence is never going to pay. It's going to take you and put you in jail and take away your future. I hope someone listens to me and gets me into the schools. Thank you for your time, Patty. Appreciate yours, Harold. Take care. Yes. Okay, all the best. Bye-bye. Uh, when we come back, home care workers, don't go away. Weekday mornings from 5.30 to 9. Jumpstart your day with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. Newsmakers, traffic, weather, and more during your VOCM morning show. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number four. Arch, you're on the air. Yes, sir. How are you today, sir? Doing grand. You? Oh, top shelf. Good man. I looked this in the book here, you know, to all the home care workers. Fair ball. What drives the bouquet? Well, uh, you know, I I know a lot of home care workers. My wife, for example, she is a home care worker, and... Uh, I listened to your show a couple of weeks ago, and I'm missing from the West Coast saying that uh, how much trouble she's having to, to get a home care worker. And now, uh, a couple of weeks ago, I left to go to uh, a gospel service at my uh, church on a Sunday evening, and I didn't see my wife no more until that Thursday morning. Because she was at work? Yep. She works approximately 100 hours a week. She gets uh, two clients. Uh, one of her clients now, like she can bring to the house, and she's a sweetheart. And uh, her other client now is a extremely stressful situation, but uh, I guess she's doing what she got to do. And, uh, and unfortunately, you know, there is home care workers who 
go to work and do nothing, but uh, 90, 99% of them go there and, uh, and do what they're required to do. And, and so say, sometimes it's extremely stressful. I can only imagine. What type of clients are you dealing with? Youth, adults, seniors? Uh, adults. Okay. Yeah, we got one that's, uh, I think she's my 30-year-old, and the other one's my 62. Well, listen, I mean, home care workers, they provide a critically important service, and there's lots of discussion whether or not we pay them enough and some of the hours that some people need that don't get. You know, we, we do the cost analysis of whether or not home support is better and home care is better than having them institutionalized. So I'll join you this morning, Arch, and throwing the bouquet out to the home care workers because they've got a really difficult job. That's not everyone's cut out for it. No, well, like I said, she loves her work, and, uh, you know, like I said, someday she comes home, she's frustrated, teed off, you know, had to deal with uh, what she's dealing with. And like, one of the companies that she's with, uh, like, uh, a lot of workers are, like, say, well, not a lot, there's a couple that keeps calling in sick, so she's basically their backup. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, people certainly lean on their home care worker, there's no doubt. So I'm sure your wife will be quite pleased with your bouquet to her and her colleagues this morning, and I appreciate your time, Arch. Thank you very much, sir, and you have a good day. You too, take care. Okay, it's first time caller, by the way. Welcome to the show. Call again. Right on, thanks. Okay, bye. Arch, bye-bye. There we go. Uh, let's go to line number three. What do we have? Okay, good morning to Sheila McKinnon-Drover. She's the chair of L'Arche Avalon. Good morning, Sheila. You're on the air. Oh, good morning, Patty. Thanks for taking my call. I appreciate that. Happy to do it, Sheila. I'm trying to uh, drag it out of my poor old adult mind, but your organization deals with adults with intellectual disabilities? Yes, that's right. Okay. Our, our, uh, actually, our group locally is working now to build two homes in the Pleasantville area, and we actually have land um, for eight adults with intellectual disabilities, four in each of two houses. And uh, this is one of our big fundraisers, which is our annual auction, online auction. And uh, it's on Facebook. It's ongoing right now. And there are fabulous, fabulous things on this jewelry and art and china and plants and you name it, hiking gear. Uh, there's even a wheelchair there. So you can find just about anything there. And um, it's ending on noon on Monday. So people who uh, would like to join the auction, bid on things, um, should uh, get on it right away. Well, before we get into the auction, I'm happy to promote it. What's inside the envelope of intellectual disabilities? I mean, I know it can be something that's quite mild, all the way to profound disabilities. Like, are, what's, what's included in the intellectual disabilities? Like, is ADHD, or can you help us understand that a little clearer? Well, really, um, in our, from our point of view, it's anybody with intellectual disabilities. And uh, for the most part, people who uh, would not be able to live on their own, to live independently. So in our setup, uh, you know, in our homes, people would be living uh, there the same as you would in your own family. And some of the assistants uh, would live in, have their own quarters, in our case, upstairs. And um, uh, some of them would, you know, would be just living in the town. But it operates just like a family. Uh, where you're going, if you're doing something, everybody goes. You have dinner together. You, it's, it's, um, 
it's a, as home like or family like as a situation as you can as you can find and um, basically i think that anybody who would not be able to live independently you know who has an intellectual disability would qualify and that might be um, autism it could be down syndrome it could be like in the case of my sister uh, Turner syndrome uh, and uh, yeah so each person is an individual and uh, interesting and different the same as all the rest of the population Sheila what would construction of uh, these two homes look like what special features would be included well totally accessible that would be one you know one obvious necessity and um, other than that, um, just like any home, living room, dining room, you know, a common area where people would, would congregate. And we would have, too, um, as well, an area like an office or not an office, but like a smaller sitting room or whatever. A family of the people came and wanted to spend, you know, spend a time or wanted to have a meeting with somebody so that they could go in privacy, but there'd be living room, dining room. And we will have too, we have in, plan, in the plans, an area for community day programs so that you could have as many as 20 or 25 people coming in from the community uh, to, uh, to do various different workshops. What type of support staff would be in place, whether it be uh, at your current location or in these two homes? So would it be like social workers or healthcare professionals? No, we don't offer professional services okay. like that. Both would be provided through like social workers or uh, therapists or speech therapists or any, you know anything that was needed by the clients or by the you know by the the individuals like that would be provided through Eastern Health, the same as it would if they were living at home. Um, but all our assistants, all the people who work there would be what we call assistants and um, would help people with their, you know, with their everyday needs. Now, some of those people might require an assistant 24 hours a day, obviously, maybe not when they're sleeping, but, uh, and others would require much less um, support. So it, it is their personal support. Uh, for the individual. Sheila, where can people find the online auction? They can go to Larsh, and I need to spell it for you because <laughs> nobody ever gets it right first time around. It's capital L, apostrophe, capital A-R-C-H-E, Avalon. Well, capital A-V-A-L-O-N, of course. Mm -hmm. um, Larsh Avalon online auction and that's on facebook patty okay and uh what they what they need to do when they go there um is press on the there's you'll see at the top things written across and there's one word featured if you press on featured um you'll be able to see all the pictures of all the things there's over 300 items there um and um then if they want to bid press comment or if they just want to look at the things just scroll down through and all the pictures will you know will come up you can see what's see what's there and when does the auction end it ends at noon on monday and that that's um, facebook has some kind of a mechanism where they know you know when the last bid was made so um so that's good for us because and there's no dispute <laughs>
Absolutely, yeah. They'll track it fairly carefully for you. So once again, you go to Facebook, and it's L apostrophe A-R-C-H-E, Avalon, and participate in the auction. Pick up a nice prize and help the folks at Larsh Avalon try to build these two homes for their clients. Thank you for this this morning, Sheila. Thank you very much, Patty. Take care. Bye-bye. Sheila McKinnon-Drover is the chair of Larsh Avalon. Okay, let's take a break. Don't go away. When we come back, urgent care. All right. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number one, Andrew, you're on the air. Good morning, Pat. Or, well, I guess it's still morning. Good morning. It is. Yeah, middle of the morning. Yes. Um, I just wanted to call and, uh, and inform residents of Whitburn and area that on this coming Tuesday of uh, this coming week at 11 o'clock, we're meeting at the Confederation Building to protest uh, reinstatement of the ER uh, at, uh, at the clinic in Whitburn. Um, we, we are frustrated by Minister's, uh, Minister Osborne's uh, his, uh, hesitancy to you know, ensure that uh, ER indeed is the goal to, uh, to have reinstated. Uh, when, when you know, uh, human resource challenges uh, are not as bad. Um, but uh, we, we had a meeting last night with Eastern Health uh, about the urgent care, the uh, community leaders of Whitburn and surrounding area. And uh, to, to me, it seems like uh, Minister Osborne made this announcement and that Eastern Health, you know, <laughs> didn't have much time to... To really act on it, because as it sits right now, when when the urgent care center opens next week, we're going to have uh, only, we're only going to have the same two doctors that we have there now. Uh, uh, that uh, and one is full time, one is part time. So really, there's no difference. It's just under a new fancy name called urgent care, but it's still the same service we've been getting all along. Uh, but Minister Osborne's uh, news. Uh, release. We thought uh, he, when he said he was successful in uh, recruitment with uh, urgent care that he had had additional doctors, but that isn't the case. We find out last night. I had the minister on, and I asked him. I think it was you made this assertion that the plan all along was to haul emergency department services out of the WH Nuhuk Community Center. And he says, no, not at all. And they're still going to actively try to recruit to have it reopen as an ER. I mean, I can only go by what the minister said. Riddle me this now, uh, Patty. Well, we had okay. a We had a doctor, a permanent doctor at Newhook Clinic that wanted to stay as an ER doctor. And he asked for pay for service to stay there. He was denied. He went to another clinic in the province under central health and they gave him pay for service to be an ER doctor which means what which means to me why why couldn't he he uh, why wasn't it accepted at um, at New Hope clinic and a gentleman from eastern health last night told us at the meeting always said if he asked for pay for service he would have been given that like we we would give that to any physician who asked for it but why wasn't it done you know, this is the kind of questions that's not making sense. Like, it seems like there is, and, and I don't believe for one minute it's Eastern Health. They seem committed to getting the clinic open to 24-7 ER again. 
uh, they have some challenges in doing so, but I, I sincerely believe they do want to see that. But it seems like there's an overarching theme with government, no, ER is not opening in Whitburn. They're just trying to do, like, Patty, I could go in by your house, and I could take a teaspoon of dirt and dump on your lawn. You're not going to notice that for, you know, probably a month. But eventually, you're going to have a big pile there. But if I come in and dump the whole thing there right away, you're going to know about it. I think th this is being done incrementally. Steps are being put in place, and we're not stupid enough to fall for it. We're watching this, and we're staying engaged. That's why we're protesting. So I urge any residents in this area, Trinity South and Whitburn, and, and surrounding uh, communities like Norms Cove, Chapel, Armland Cove, get out to the protests on Tuesday and let our voices be known that ER must, must be reinstated. I appreciate the time, Andrew. Thank you. No problem. Take care. Bye. All right, bye-bye. Uh, let's roll here. Let's go to line number three. Say good morning to the PC member for Stephenville Port of Port, who I believe is out in Central attending the Special Olympics today. That's Tony Wakeham. Good morning, Tony. You're on the air. Hey, good morning, Patty. Yes, indeed. I uh, was here last night for the opening ceremonies, and it was a wonderful event. I heard you allude to it earlier on in your uh, on your show, and uh, the atmosphere last night, the energy in the in the auditorium in the room at the uh, Joe Byrne Memorial Stadium was uh, fantastic. And uh, kudos to all of the organizers uh, who put off just that uh, tremendous opening ceremonies, but also, of course. Let's start with the number one reason we're here, and that's the athletes themselves. You and I both know the effort and dedication and commitment it takes uh, to uh, practice and train for all these type of games. And, of course, not only for the athletes, parents, guardians, coaches, volunteers. It was amazing. And uh, this morning I've been on Centennial Field watching some of the uh, – snowshoeing competition and it's been quite good there's some weather on the way for this afternoon so they're trying to get a lot of it in today yeah a lady called actually earlier in the week and her daughter's participating in the snowshoe competition uh, interestingly enough i i've been so fortunate to be involved in a couple of different special olympic games and you know whether it be competitions that i've been involved with and you know it was a I don't, I don't know what the right word is, cutthroat, but winning was almost everything, you know. And the smiles on the face and the camaraderie of the Special Olympians is just brilliant stuff. So I've got a soft spot in my heart for it, and I, don't, I shouldn't probably admit to how big a sook I am, but, boy, giving out some medals and stuff at the Special Olympics is all I could do to hold it together. Yeah, and, and, and Betty, they can teach us a lot yep. about uh, teamwork and teamship and camaraderie and sportsmanship. Because they do it and show it how it's supposed to be done. And uh, and that's that's what uh, should inspire everybody. And I hope more people get a chance to come out and see uh, some, of the, uh, some of the events today. Uh, yes, please do go out and support them because they deserve it 100%. Yeah. I, I called in this morning, Patty, to talk about the Upper Churchill negotiations. And the reason is, I'm, you know, we're all surprised at the uh, how fast this seems to be moving. We heard from the Premier of Quebec that he was coming to Newfoundland, and then our own government acknowledged he was coming. He indicated he was coming for negotiations. Our Premier said, no, it's only discussions. They go out to supper, and literally before they finish dessert, the Premier announces that he's putting a negotiation team in place. So I'm not sure why the rush but in doing so, I think there are basic principles that our province should be taking a stand on when it comes to dealing with this particular contract and with Quebec. 
And we haven't heard from the government as to what the principles of that negotiation will be. And I would like to put three principles out there and uh, let people debate them, talk about it. But I would believe that our, our government should be able to tell us what the principles of the negotiations are. What do you mean by that, Tony? Well, let's start with the first one being the fact that Quebec, right now, the only real uh, contract we have or person to sell our power to is Hydro-Quebec. We're barred at the borders. We had to sell our power to Hydro-Quebec, who then sells it to everyone else. So what I would suggest is that Quebec must not unfairly restrict our ability to move electricity across the Quebec's borders to markets elsewhere. Fundamentally, Quebec should have agreed. Has Quebec agreed? They've never agreed to this. But has the previous Quebec now agreed to allow Newfoundland and Labrador to move its power across their borders? That's fundamental principle number one. We can, we have to get to a point where Hydro-Quebec is not our only customer. If we can't break that down, we're in serious trouble. Oh, 100%, because without access to market, we might as well just let the water spill over the dam. Absolutely. The second principle, I would argue, is that Quebec must agree to remove the terrible terms of the 1999 revised shareholders agreement. And that gave Hydro-Quebec a veto over CFLCO's decisions after 2041. And I'm not sure everybody's aware of that, but basically that those terms can say, basically say that the corporation, CFLCO, can do almost nothing unless 75% of the shareholders agree. Now, our province only controls 65.8 of the shares. So essentially what we are doing is giving Quebec the power to block almost any decision after 2041. Hasn't that so, been part of some of the legal challenges, though, Tony, of which we came up uh, zero? I think we're 0 for 7. Well, that's exactly why it needs to be changed, and the Quebec, the Quebec Premier and Quebec need to agree to this change. That needs to be removed. Otherwise, why are we talking to them? You know, why are we negotiating? We have to have a stance as a province to say that these type of things have to be part of the principles of negotiation. Without these items in there, we shouldn't even be at the table. Does it stand to reason, Tony, that these are absolutely under consideration and negotiation? You know, I know that the, the report from the 2041 analysis group was in government's hands. They said, we're not going to release it, you know, maybe jeopardize some commercial sensitivities. Okay, but we're not even exactly sure what they're asking. Whether it be about refusal to flow power, whether it be about redress of 69, whether it be about redress of 99, if it includes Muskrat, includes Gull, includes Atlantic Loop, we have no earthly idea. So it's hard to know if we can evaluate whether or not these negotiations will be successful because we don't even know what we're doing or i don't know what to do well that's exactly right and that brings us to the, the third point about any proposed contract the details of which and including all aspects like you just mentioned whether it's gall island development whether it's a lower churchill arrangement such as rate mitigation whether it's a proposed atlantic loop all of those things those details should and ought to be debated in the house of assembly but you know we have something Quebec wants. That's why they're here. So when are we going to stand up and drive the agenda as opposed to Quebec driving the agenda? It That's a serious problem for me. And, you know, we have to stop acting like a backseat passenger and 
you know, let's get in the driver's seat, which we are. We ought to be. So, you know, let's tell the people what you're negotiating, what you're standing for. And then we can we can get behind our government. But right now, as you just said, we have no idea. I can only guess, you know, because there's lots of different things that might be or should be uh, on the table. But, you know, but the timing, you say we have something Quebec wants. I think that we have something Quebec needs. So we have a little bit more leverage, not to say that we are all of a sudden a bigger, the biggest bully on the block versus Hydro-Quebec or the province of Quebec. I don't think that. But I think the timing is also curious. And I think it stems from the fact that not only did we entertain a 2041 review, but I follow along with what Legault talks about a lot. For some reason, I just do. They've been talking hydro extensively, and they've been th- saying things like Gull and the Upper Churchill for a long time. So obviously it's on Legault's mind, and consequently, they kind of came to us this time. It's very different than us going to them, us taking them to court. It's kind of the other way around, so the timing just makes sense based on what I've heard from Legault over the recent months. Absolutely, and that's why I believe we're in the driver's seat. It's not about not having a fair and equitable agreement. But it's about basic principles like the first two I just mentioned to say that we will no longer be uh, not permitted to transmit power through Quebec or, or that, that terms of that uh, contract that was renewed in 1999. These are things that have to be changed and fundamentally need to be changed. Otherwise, why are we ever going to sign another contract that says the only customer we have for our power is Hydro-Quebec? That cannot happen. Uh, very uh, fair enough. I think many of us are on the same page uh, regarding the 2041 discussions or the 1969 discussions, whichever <laughs> way people want to couch it. Uh, any comment, Tony? On I know that you're a provincial politician, not a municipal politician, but the council on Stephenville has voted. All of them voted as a po- only uh, Lenny Tillers oh, did not vote in favor to fund the operations at the Stephenville airport. There's a lot of People still hanging by a thread as to whether or not there's ever going to be any move uh, on this front with the Diamond Group. Do you have any thoughts on what's going on out there with the airport? Well, again, it's you know it's been a long time since the first original announcement was made that the airport was going to be purchased. I think it's more than a year now, and there was a lot of hype and a lot of uh, uh, things said about the future and and what it will mean for for the area. And so as time has gone on, of course, people are become more skeptical. And so they're still waiting. And they've been waiting patiently for that uh, announcement, for that deal to be done. And uh, I don't have any of the de- inner details of how that deal is progressing. I have not been involved in it, obviously. But only to say that if it wasn't for the taxpayers of Stephenville, that airport would not still be open. The taxpayers of the uh, of Stephenville have been funding that airport for many years now, and obviously, you know the idea of a sale, a potential sale, is is a good thing. But you know it's dragged on for so long, and now it's gotten to a point where people are frustrated. People need more information. People need to understand clearly because there's been several timelines that have been talked about that appear to have been missed along the way, and there may be good reason for that, but. People need to understand exactly what's happening and what it is, uh, you know, where it's going and how it's going to, how quick or how long or what the future holds. They they seem to be hanging an awful lot of uh, emphasis on the April 12th court date to deal with whatever this insolvency outstanding matter is. Uh, Tony, appreciate your time. Enjoy the rest of the games. Thank you, Patty. Take care.
Bye. Bye bye. It's Tony Wake with PC member for Stephenville Port of Port. In the greatest athlete conversation, as submitted by Paul, and he's absolutely spot on. Good suggestion. Tulse Chapman, inducted in the Sport NL Hall of Fame November 16th of 1991. As an athlete, played with distinction in hockey, baseball, basketball, squash, tennis, and racquetball. His son Ralph was also a fine athlete. As a matter of fact, I'm dealing with Tulse Chapman and Dick Cook from the Old Feelings to try to recognize. Their contributions to athletics in the province inside the D.F. Barnes Arena. So, Tulsa Chapman on the list. Let's take a break. When we come back, Jerry Earl, president of the NAEP, to talk about Whitburn's ambulance service fiasco. Don't go away. Weekday mornings from 5.30 to 9. Jumpstart your day with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. Newsmakers, traffic, weather, and more during your VOCM morning show. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Say good morning to the president at NAEP. Uh, that's Jerry Earl. Good morning, Jerry. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. And uh, just leading to the commercial break, I heard you use the word uh, fiasco in relation to Whitburn. Uh, a very good uh, word to use in relation to the situation out there. I apologize to you and your listeners. I was right up front. I'm on the side of the highway here in Clarenville from a couple of days on the road. Uh, so I'm not sure what the reception like. But It sounds uh, pretty good. To call in on that, that sounds okay. Go right ahead. Patty, I listened yesterday first at a frustration to the young woman. I think she said she was in her 20s, a, a PCP or a personal care or a primary care paramedic in Whitburn. Uh, and I just shook my head. I couldn't believe what I was listening to because you're correct. We've been talking years about what's happening in the pre-hospital care system, EMS or emergency medical service across this province. And when I heard a young woman talk about how she was notified about losing her job, I'm saying fiasco. Uh, that's an understatement. We cannot afford in Newfoundland and Labrador to lose a single EMS personnel, emergency medical service personnel. Uh, out at notification happening with Burn, I can see what's happening because the same thing. And when we heard about it, we were starting here through, uh, through social media the same night, I believe, as Mr. Smith. And Mr. Smith, I just heard him a short while ago, he is a very reputable EMS provider in this province, a long history, and I had the pleasure many years ago in a kind of a way not work with his service, but when I used to be a paramedic myself, uh, had interactions with him and go back a long way. So he's a reputable service provider. Out of that announcement, way, we got notified the next day uh, that they were going to rely on the Metro Ambulance personnel, which, as you know, has been stressed to the limit. We were successful in having some additional ambulances added last summer. And we started receiving calls from our EMS people that we represent because we don't represent them uh, in the Whitburn area. But I feel for every EMS person in this province. But we started getting concerned saying, how are we going to be able to provide that service now in Whitburn if we can't meet the call demand in the metro region uh, and a, a massive population? And I agree with them. We were put on a call. Some of our staff were asked to go on a call. The director of EMS could not make time to quan that call. A critical situation, and this individual that Mr. Smith referred to, could not make the time to even come on the call, explain how this was going to work. What I have done since then, and like I said, even though we don't represent, uh, I've reached out to the minister uh, to ask for a meeting which has been arranged. I've just heard, as I've been waiting to go on this call now for Mr. Ken Beard, uh, the acting CEO of Eastern Health, because I want to talk to him. I don't want to talk to somebody in the middle. I want to know how they made this decision and how they are actually going to rely on the Metro Ambulance System now to go out, a system of stress, and provide an invaluable service. There was an easy solution here. That young woman in Whitburn and her co-workers did not have to lose their jobs. 
if Mr. Smith, they were going to temporarily or, or permanently remove his service, why did Eastern Health not hire on these paramedics? Why could they not take on these paramedics and EMRs in Whitburn and continue to service, keep them employed, keep them in Newfoundland, Labrador, and service the people of Whitburn here? Because they're already losing their emergency department. They need an EMS system there they can rely on. So I don't understand this fiasco they've created. And the people of Whitburn, the women that work in that system, there's answers deserving, and they should be provided, and we shouldn't be having to ask publicly for an explanation of what happened there. You know, fair enough. I mean, we cannot lose any paramedics. And Wade Smith, who I spoke with this morning, suggested that maybe as many of eight of his paramedics are gone by this time next week. That is, we have to avoid that at all costs. It gets even worse for me. So he gets a letter at 20 minutes to 6, and at 6 o'clock they were shut down. The employees find out about it on Facebook. No one's ever sat down with Wade Smith to try to work through this, to match the uh, the call logs with the AVL about responding to this one call that's in question. Considerations of occupational health and safety regarding the February call, where it was deemed unsafe to even put the uh, ambulance on the road. It was unsafe to put a plow on the road. Well, that means it's probably unsafe to put an ambulance on the road. So with his years of service, and I even asked him if he's been found not compliant in uh, instances past, and he walked us through a few calls where there was complaints from the general public about the timeliness of the response from his services. They walked through it with the compliance officers with call logs and all the documentation. So he seems to have a pretty good track record. He's been in business since 1996. We already have problems with the ground ambulance system, period. We already have a shortage of paramedics. So this seemingly coming out of nowhere to make things worse is really hard to understand. Absolutely, and, and like I said, try to get an answer. We expect, because we've seen the same Facebook post and we monitor social media, so I said, holy crap, like, I knew what was happening in Whitburn with the ER, and I said, okay, if they don't have an ambulance system. So we were starting to get calls that particular night from, from some of our EMS personnel because they got a cold call, just the same as those that were losing their positions. Our EMS people were getting a call saying, basically, you have to be in Whitburn tomorrow, and they were trying to figure out, well, we can't even staff the EMS system there in the metro region. Now you're going to take staff and expect them to report to Whitburn and provide service, which they did uh, and which they've tried to handle. But like I said, that young woman that spoke to you yesterday, and I listened to her, and her co-workers are right there. They committed to go to work in that area. They know the area. They know the residents. They know the needs in the area. Why those paramedics could not be kept on and cannot be taken on today, even if it's not by Mr. Smith in the interim, because I'm sure he's going to have his legal team work on it, as he should. But why can't those paramedics be taken on by Eastern Elf, whether it be an interim long term, I've told the minister, I've told Eastern Health, we will work collaboratively with them. Even though we have a collective agreement, place, we can sit down and iron this out by 4 o'clock this afternoon that these people could be kept on in some way, shape, or form. Because I agree with that young woman. Like, obviously, she mentioned she don't have a mortgage or anything here, but she committed to the area. She will likely look at going to Halifax or somewhere. Once she leaves, we're not going to get her to come back. We, and you're absolutely correct, Patty, and you've heard me say before, we cannot lose one single EMS personalist, whether it be an EMR, a PCP, a dispatcher, air ambulance pilot. We cannot lose one more. We have to keep what we have and then recruit more. But if, if paramedics outside Newfoundland and Labrador or somebody in high school right now is looking to go into this profession say, if that's the way I'm going to be treated, why would I go to work here? But you talk to every paramedic. They love what they do. They yeah. just want to be able to do it. And 
I don't understand what's going on here. But like I said, I've reached out now to the minister. Ken Beard and the Fearless just responded to me as I've been on here saying, you will, so I'm open to have that meeting as early as this afternoon when I get back from St. John's. We want answers. These paramedics deserve answers, and the people in Whitburn absolutely deserve answers. These paramedics should be kept there either by Eastern Elf or by Mr. Smith. And like I said, I agree with you, Mr. Smith. I know him. He is a reputable operator. And he's respected by the people that work for him. So we got to find a solution here. We can't wait till these paramedics. And I understand there's as many as, like you just said, eight, Patty, getting ready to leave. We cannot lose them. And we got to yeah. protect those paramedics and EMRs. Yeah, and I mean, no, not one paramedic is more important than another. But a 20-year-old, new to the profession with 35 years of uh, professional experience ahead of her that could be all in Whitburn or in this province is a really sad state of affairs. Last one, because I do have to go, is, you know, paramedics going into the profession or the lack thereof. But Mr. Smith also makes the point that, you know, how trepidatious might companies be to enter into a provincial government contract when they hear these kinds of stories, whether it be with a Smith's ambulance or Gladney's buses or whatever else. There seems to be, you know, it has a, a, an impact far and wide. It's not just about Wade Smith. It's not just about his 13 paramedics. I think there's more to it. Uh, appreciate the time. Very quick last word to you, Jerry. Absolutely, paramedic. And, uh, Patty, like, we all talk about health accord. That was a just laying a foundation what's supposed to happen in health care. We participated in that we were led to believe certain things were going to happen. There's a foundation plan there. Already I'm seeing the cracks in that plan before it's been implemented because one of the things in there is actually talked about our air, road, ambulance system in the province, what's supposed to happen before anything else happens in healthcare. I'm already airing. There's cracks in that system that they're not even off the ground there. So major problems. We have to find a way to collaboratively fix them, and especially for our EMS system, because it's the women and men this system that's for decades been forgotten about. We're not prepared to continue to have them forgotten about. Whether we represent them or not, uh, they deserve much better, and those paramedics in Whitburn deserve much better in the way they were treated in the last week. Appreciate the time. Safe travels, Jerry. Thank you, Patty. Take care. Bye-bye. Jerry Earl, President of NAEP. Very quick on the sports note. Doug Partridge. Last night he coached his last game, 37 years in the business, 32 of them here in this province, over 1,000 games, almost 700 of which have been wins, seven uh, AUS titles, a national bronze medal, and that's, of course, Doug Partridge coaching at Munn. Uh, let's take a break. When we come back, we're talking mental health and addictions. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Well, March the 12th, the stroke of midnight, daylight savings time starts. Join us on line number one to discuss the impact of the clocks springing forward is Dr. Christopher Earle. He's a psychiatrist dealing with mental health and addictions. We're going to talk time change and sleep disorders. Good morning, Dr. Lake, or Dr. Earl. pardon me, you're on the air. Hi, Patty. How are you doing? Excellent. How about you? Great. Um, so, yeah, I'm a psychiatrist. I work at the Health Sciences Center. Um, I do psychiatry, and I also do sleep disorders medicine. So this is near and dear to my heart as a sleep physician. Uh, happy to be here talking to you today. So for me, to be honest with you, whether the clocks are falling back or springing forward has never had a massive impact on me as an individual, but I know it does for many. I think it's time, before we even get into the potential to affect the sleep disorders and whatnot, it's high time we even have a legitimate conversation with doing away with this. But how indeed does the spring forward impact individuals necessarily? 
Well, you're exactly right, Patty. Most people actually adjust pretty well. Usually over three or four days, they're kind of back in a good rhythm on the new schedule. Um, there's a couple groups that do have a more difficult time. Uh, anybody with kids or pets will tell you that they wake up the time they were supposed to wake up regardless of what the clock says. Uh, teenagers and people who are kind of real night owls can find a harder time adjusting and definitely people who work shifts or have sleep disorders themselves. Um, but definitely there's a lot of mental and even physical health problems and a lot uh, of increased accidents in kind of the few days following the time change. Um, we see that there's more traffic accidents, more workplace accidents, uh, even things like heart attacks and strokes. In the first week following the time change, we see an increased number of those events. Uh, but people with mental health problems, um, you know, we, we hear increased reports of depressive symptoms with the, you know, more dark in the morning. And also people with sleep disorders report kind of difficulty with the change. When it comes to stroke and otherwise, what's the direct correlation with a one-hour time change with those types of ser very serious issues? So there's, you know, it's really hard to do these studies, but they have lots of ideas. You know, obviously things like accidents and, and um, workplace injuries we think are related to fatigue. You know, people have missed an hour of sleep. They're not functioning either best mentally, and they're more likely to be in a car accident. When it comes to heart attacks and strokes and other medical events, you know, we don't have a direct cause kind of, but we theorize it's because of disruption to our body's circadian rhythm. So our body has an internal clock that operates on a 24-hour basis. Um, you know, getting sunlight and our normal activity kind of winds up that clock and keeps it on a regular rhythm. And we do see when that circadian rhythm is disrupted, particularly in groups like people who work night shifts and things like that, we actually do see higher rates of things like heart attack, strokes, and other medical problems. So we think it's kind of a smaller version of that, except on a much broader population level because it's affecting everybody instead of just people who work night shifts. We should have had John a week ago because, you know, some of the suggestions how you can prepare your body for the clock springing forward for daylight saving time. But just for information for folks, what can they do to reduce the negative impact? Well, you know, there's two or three things that, you know, usually when people ask me about this in clinic, I'll tell them. The first, you're right, it's, it's something that you can adjust to a little bit early. You know, adjusting our body's clock gradually is a lot easier than a sudden change. So, you know, for people with families or pets that, you know, Monday morning is going to be hell with everybody kind of waking up at a different time. Um, you know, changing the family alarm by 15 or 20 minutes in the, in the direction of the change over the next three or four days will help us to adjust and just have an easier time on Monday morning. Hopefully you won't be one of those car accidents that we see on Monday morning related to this. Um, but also with the daylight savings change now, we're gonna have a lot, our mornings are gonna be darker, our evenings are gonna be brighter, and our body actually functions better on standard time where we get lots of sunlight in the morning. So trying to get out, get some sunlight in the morning, it might be while you're shoveling snow, or it might be if you get out for a walk before work with your dog. Uh, and keeping kind of activity up in the morning helps our body adjust. And my last tip would really that if you're someone who's got plans this weekend, you know, don't burn the candle on both ends. You know, you don't want to be out till uh, you don't want to be awake to see the time change on Saturday night because then you're definitely going to feel groggy on Sunday morning. So maybe having a bit of an easier weekend um, so that you can have so, a good amount of sleep on Saturday night regardless. Is there a difference on all of these fronts, uh, whether the clock springs forward or falls back? Yeah, well, you know, losing the hour, the disruption does make it, you know, there's always three or four days of difficulty following the time change, whatever direction, you know, usually the extra hour of sleep in the fall is, you know, people report that to be easier. We do see kind of just a disruption in schedule, you know, farm animals, pets and children all seem to really not like the change because they don't see the clock. Um, but our body actually does function better on kind of the, the normal schedule standard time as opposed to the daylight saving schedule because 
the, you know, daylight savings time makes it so that instead of having light in the morning before work, we kind of have these longer summer evenings. It's really good for, you know, people who want to eat dinner on a patio or things like that. But our body is kind of programmed to work by getting sunlight in the morning and during daylight savings time, especially in the spring and the fall, uh, where we have, you know, fewer hours of daylight, um, it, we really do see the struggle coming from that about lack of morning sunlight is what really makes the difference there. I don't know if you've uh, been following some of these news clips that I have in the recent past, but, you know, talking about mental health in particular, some of this stuff, I really can't wrap my mind around how the people approach these uh, topics. And this one is about a study done, it's been reported in the BBC, saying that the mental health crisis from pandemic was minimal. It goes on to say the review did not focus on lower income countries or children young people and those with existing problems, the groups most likely affected, and risks hiding more important effects among disadvantaged groups, which is a mouthful. But how do you react to a report like that? Because I'm certainly not a clinical professional, but sitting in this chair, I hear a lot of these types of stories, and they seem to have been increased in volume and severity over the years. Your thoughts on that report? You know, I think, you know, that's one report, and obviously there's lots of data coming from lots of different sources. And I think if you talk clinically and if you look at things like wait lists, there's been lots of impacts of the pandemic on people's mental health. You know, we have a healthcare staffing shortage, that's meaning less access to services, and also the stress and anxiety of, you know, living through a pandemic and the social anxiety have, of that have certainly impacted people's mental health. There's some great literature, uh, even Canadian literature, showing very clear things that happened in the initial months of the pandemic. You know, we saw a soaring rate of eating disorders in young adolescents. Um, and, and, you know, I think there have been lots of ways that mental health has, you know, deteriorated over the past months. Now, there are some good things that have come from the pandemic. You know, it is easier to get access to some forms of care, like people who live out of town, you know, they can get virtual care now and drive in to you know, follow up with their doctors for appointments without having to necessarily disrupt their schedule so much. So there's been some improvements in access, but I think overall, um, if you talk to anybody who works in mental health and addictions, we'd all probably echo that the system is in far worse shape than it was at the beginning of the pandemic, and that we are seeing a lot of patients who are taking longer to access care, you know, they're sicker at the point of receiving care, and they've decompensated over the pandemic. So. You know, that's one study, and I, I think there's probably going to be a lot of criticism coming out in the literature against that study because a lot of people are, uh, you know, just by their own experience or by their own metrics, seeing that things have worsened over the pandemic. Now, I suppose I should note that this study was about basically the first year of the pandemic. You know, uh, this is not meant as any type of disrespect to anybody in any clinical field, but we probably should have done a better job listening to the social scientists versus many many other clinicians necessarily because they kind of forecasted what we were going to get ourselves into, how certain messages about uh, mandates and vaccines and masks, how that was going to ripple throughout the general public. Now that we've got a chance, and I don't know if it's over or it's endemic, I don't know, and I don't think it matters how we label it at this moment in time, to get back on the rails, to deal with maybe socialization, maybe, you know, we talk about teens or what have you, how should we talk about this? Because I do struggle in how to talk about the, where we are and how we recover, how we improve things. So how do you think the messaging should sound? Because I think some of it over the, most, the, the past two and a half years has been not very helpful, in fact, maybe hurtful. Well, you know, I think it's I think it's a good thing that, you know, our public health measures were largely successful in retaining, you know, the, the you know, the, the biggest parts of the damage that we would have seen from the pandemic in the early phases. But you're correct, there's always a trade-off. And and the social isolation that we, you know, mandated or self-imposed really did have an impact on how we socialize as people. Humans are social animals. We evolved to be social animals, just like, you know, monkeys and everybody else that you see. We work and live best in communities with the help and support of others. 
but being social is also a muscle, right? And we've just all been through, well, going on three years now, of canceled birthday parties, canceled graduations, canceled casual outings. You know, there's those friends you used to see every year at Christmas or a couple times a year at parties. You haven't seen them in three or four years and you've totally fallen off your radar and you probably don't even know them anymore. Being social is a muscle. So it's something that we have to exercise and use regularly to keep a good, you know, fit shape. And now as we're kind of going back to as much as we can, the way things were pre-pandemic with regards to activity levels and engagements, being social is something that we're going to have to be more effortful in doing. You know, if you're somebody who went out for drinks, you know, or, you know, went out to a movie once a week with friends and then it stopped in the pandemic, sure, it may have been two or three months since you've done that recently. And it's because you've gotten out of the habit. And it's about developing and growing those healthy habits again so that we can socialize and have, you know, good mental health as well as good physical health. Yeah, I think I see a lot of that around uh, social muscle atrophy that has really been bigger than I've ever seen in my lifetime. Like, I have a very social circle of friends, and we all love to get together. Now, thankfully, that hasn't had that sort of negative impact in my group. But for others, including some of my buddies here at work, they talk about the fact that their social circle has been fragmented. And, they're, you know, they're kind of struggling with how to get it back on track because it has a lot to do with not only how they occupy themselves in their free time, but their overall happiness and contentment. So there's a lot to that. Uh, very quickly, and I don't even know how to couch this one, but... How do you reflect on and how do we backfill the role that Dr. Lada played? Because not only as an advocate, but the long and deep patient roster that Dr. Lada had well into his retired years. Oh, <laughs> you've asked the million-dollar question there, Patty. And, you know, I, I know, we, you know as somebody who works with Eastern Health, I do know some of the strategies that our health authority is taking to address this. Um, Specifically, I know that patients who are followed by Dr. Lada are being offered a follow-up appointment for, I guess, reassessment and treatment recommendations. Some of them have moved on to kind of continue on the medications Dr. Lada started with their family doctor because that was the most accessible kind of route. And other psychiatrists are kind of stepping in to fill the gap. But I'll be perfectly honest, as a new in practice psychiatrist, I am much slower and much less skilled than Dr. Lada was. So it would probably take two or three of me to just fill his kind of his one-person practice um, because of how busy and how skilled he was as a clinician. Um, and ob obviously, people have different practice styles, so there, there will be some growing changes for his patients as they get adapted to kind of a new perspective of doing things, you know, with a different doctor as well. But we are making, I, I, I can say I'm not a representative of Eastern Health, but I am an employee and I, I am part of these meetings that, you know, we there is a plan and, and patients, applications of Dr. Lodges, I think, have been or are being contacted by, in, in the process of rebooking to kind of bridge their care. And um, they, if anybody is kind of struggling or finds a gap in service right now, they can reach out to the central intake number for Eastern Health to make it known that they're still waiting for that follow-up uh, kind of piece to happen. And the number for that central intake number for Eastern Health is 752-8888. So that's a pretty easy number to remember, but they also have a website. Um, yeah. They can also call, I think Dr. Lada's clinic number, he operated out of an Eastern Health clinic. I think that clinic number has still been active, so that, you know, they can try that, but I can't speak to that right now because I can't test it while I'm on the phone with you. <laughs> no, no problem. And lean on the nav patient navigator, that is Barry Hewitt. He does uh, incredible work. Uh, yes, he does. Do you have time for a couple of quick ones? Sure. <laughs> okay. You know, there's a couple of great mental health advocates, just regular citizens that are out there doing some serious advocacy work and have been for quite a long time. One in particular comes to mind, Christy, and she talks about access to long-term mental health care. 
How should we be talking about that? What's the, uh, what are some of the things we need to know about? What needs to be adjusted so that that can be improved? Because it's one thing to talk about continuity of care. It's one thing to talk about a wait list to see a psychiatrist. But it's the, the progress or the platform for long-term access. How, does, how should that look? How should we be talking about that? Well, you asked a great question, Patty, because, you know, there are some patients on a wait list for psychiatry who just want to know, you know, what med would be the best, or they're looking for diagnostic clarification, and their family doctors are more than willing and, and capable of managing kind of with direction kind of the majority of their mental health system, symptoms. So for some patients, you know, who have, you know, most times severe or persistent mental illness, you know, things like schizophrenia, um, or other severe and persistent mental illnesses, they do require ongoing care from a psychiatrist. And, you know, in an effort to address wait lists within the mental health systems, a lot of places had started doing this, you know, consultation-only type of care, meaning, you know, you see someone once and then you're kind of gone back to your family doctor, but we've actually moved away from that model, and that's in response to the needs of the system, feedback from patients, and also just the greater plan for mental health services kind of in our communities. And Eastern Health is no longer running those consultation-only clinics. What they're offered now is a consultation with a psychiatrist. And in that appointment, you know, the psychiatrist and the, basically will have a discussion around their care needs and whether or not they need one-time care, short-term care, or long-term care. So the avenue is open for that type of care now, and th that access to services should be improving now. And that's in response to these types of feedback and this type of advocacy, I feel. In the world of physical care, you know, we've changed with uh, how we could do hip and replacement surgeries and fly in, fly out for cardiovascular work. With the construction of a new mental health and addictions facility to replace the old Waterford, is there talk amongst your colleagues and the department or the regional health authority about not only, you know, having better, more secure, safe, clean, dignified surroundings, about changing how we deliver care? Well, there really is. And, you know, if, if you actually look at the number of beds of the, you know, our new mental health facility versus, you know, what we used to operate with, it, you know, or what we've had in the past at the Waterford Hospital, there is a bed reduction. And that's because of changing care model, right? Because right now we're at a point in mental health care where we don't look at, you know, long-term institutionalization of patients. We look at getting people out into the community so they can live fulfilling lives. And a big part of that is taking services that once only existed in the hospital and moving them outside into the community. So things like our ACT team and our FACT team are, are effectively creating an inpatient environment in the community where people who have severe persistent mental illness can be treated and maintained on medications while still, you know, living a fulfilling life outside of hospital. And furthermore, community services uh, like outreach programs, rec therapy, those types of services that used to only exist in the hospital are now being moved outside into the community. So in addition to the Addictions and Mental Health Hospital that we're building by the Health Sciences Center, there's also going to be a growing of the community programs surrounding this. And that's part of, you know, the, the larger provincial vision for mental health care um, in the province as well. And this is happening in other healthcare regions, but I don't work in them, so I can't really speak to exact plans. And I'm also not in management of Eastern Health, so I can't exactly talk about timelines and what is where at this point. But you raise a good question, and that, that is part of how we're addressing that. Really appreciate the time. I know we were just going to talk about the changing on the clocks, but we covered a lot of ground. Thanks for this, Dr. Earl. Take care. Thank you, Patty. Take care. Bye-bye. As Dr. Christopher Earle, he's a psychiatrist, uh, dealing with mental health and addictions, also sleep disorder work at, the, uh, at Eastern Health. He's a clinical assistant professor in the Faculty of Medicine. Let's take a break for the news. When we come back, tons of time to wrap up the show, but that takes you. Don't go away. 
Weekday mornings from 5.30 to 9. Jumpstart your day with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. Newsmakers, traffic, weather, and more during your VOCM Morning Show. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Good morning, Eliza. You're on the air. Hi, Patty. How are you this morning? Great today. Thank you. How are you? I'm pretty good. Just uh, need to send out uh, a message to our listeners on the tip of the Bonavista Peninsula that we are, uh, this is a tentative date for um, going into the House of Assembly and rallying outside of the Confederation Building uh, next Wednesday, which is the 15th. And uh, like I said, it's tentative, and it depends on busing, uh, getting a driver, and the weather. But if we don't get a driver to uh, be able to uh, to drive us in a bus, we are going to ask for carloads of people. And we're not really concerned about numbers. We're just concerned that we make our presence known. We will keep making our presence known. We don't have a choice. And so that would be next Wednesday, uh, the 15th. And anybody who is interested in going to St. John's, in and out, of course, the same day, to contact the group. And most people on the tip of the peninsula now know who we are. And let's go. (laughs) So uh, if I remember correctly, because there's so many different regions and communities dealing with different issues. So if Eastern Health has provided funding for two additional doctors and two nurse practitioners, wouldn't that be enough to have that emergency room reopened, or am I missing something? You know something, Patty? You're missing something, and we all are missing something. Okay, what is it? Well, you can fund what you like, and it sounds good to the people, and it is. It's wonderful to fund, but where are we going to find them? Well, that's the trick, right? I mean, do you think that government and the health authorities actively trying to fill those positions? Because if they are, then what would be the essence of the protest? Well, for one thing, we have not been calling it a protest. We are advocating oh, for okay. instead of protesting against. Fair enough. Actually, we don't even like the word protest because protest has gotten a negative connotation over the years, and we're trying to do things, believe it or not. Some people believe that we're trying to do things in a positive way, whereas I would say government and the health authority, some of them are saying, what in the world are they trying to do? Well, maybe we're trying to undo things because there's a lot of misinformation out there and a lot of glossy things that sounds absolutely wonderful if it can happen. But, you know, how do I put this? Um, I go over different interviews from various people, and I briefly went through one that the Premier said about when he was announcing the institution or the new hospital and everything. We need a place to put those that we recruit. And it kind of makes your heart sick every time you read it because we don't need more hospitals to put those we recruit. We need to recruit and put them in the places now that don't have them. Like chewing gum and walking is a parallel. Uh, I'm very puzzled and we're all missing something. But you know what? It's complicated because I think they they have it mesmerizing. They're saying things, and it does not make sense. 
like the Whitburn Clinic. What in the world? They're going to take doctors away from their own clinics now and put them Anyway, I can't even go there, Patty. <laughs> I honestly can't, and a lot of people can't. And you know what? If they had to stop and think about what they're saying, they're reacting to bad situations without evidence-based. That's the words they use. They, they, oh, they made this decision evidence-based. Evidence-based on what? And when you can change it in, in a matter of no time, there's something very wrong. And, and I've got to say this, too. I've got to say this in um, – with feeling a kind of uh, empathy for anybody, anybody who's in a leadership position, because they're damned if they do and they're damned if they don't. And many of us, I'm sure, would not want to be the premier right now or the minister of health, but they are in the positions that they're in, and I think they can be doing better than what they're doing. Don't go throwing money at a situation. Sit down and think it through logically. But logic and common sense? I had someone say to me the other day, I'm waiting for a minister of common sense. Anyway, he's not there. Fair enough. And you did mention Whitburn, Eliza. What do you and uh, those of you in the community think about the fact that, look, I'm pretty sure that the first urgent care clinic is not going to be the last in this province. What do you think, would that be of help to do some work while we try to see whether or not Eastern Health can recruit the doctors required to reopen the emergency room? So what do you make of an implementation of urgent care, or do you think that would be the beginning of the end? Once that was established, there would be no ER in the future. Well, that could be. And and I can't talk about it because I don't know enough about it. So, But I want to go back to something, and I'm going to keep going back here. We had several doctors willing to work at a Bonavista to provide emergency uh, on-call services for seven to ten-day shifts. And... What happened? It took months and months and months, and right now they're just making offers. Well, just recently, Penny, the paramedics went on strike. In two days, they were back to work because it was a very serious situation. We couldn't be without paramedics. Uh, Mom, they were on strike for probably less than two weeks or a little over two weeks. Back to work, negotiations, and they went back to work. Well, what in the world is the difference? Isn't our emergency rooms anywhere in our province as important as the paramedics and the teachers, uh, the the, uh, professors at Memorial University? Like, and for months and months, everything, you know what, I'm going to say this. This is an opinion. I think that the regional health authorities, probably all over the province, got their own plans that they want they want to close down different hospitals or and turn them into clinics or not have anything there at all. I, I can't help it because the writing, you know, we've lost a lot of services over the years, Patty, a lot. And, you know, the plan, they planned it, and they did it without letting anybody know it was done. And Well, we're not even started on things yet, and I'm going to tell you, if, if, Minister Osborne and anybody else thinks that the crowd from the Bonavista Peninsula is going to back away, we're not going to settle for anything less, not this time.
and we're in it. We're in it for the long haul. We're going to keep asking questions. You know what? I even had a person say to me, you've created a mob. A mob? Because we're asking questions? We have a right to ask questions? Yes. Exactly. Yeah, I, I would just, you know, oh, that, I just that. reject that one because it's not mobbed people. You know, even if you're so careful to choose your words like you're advocating for as opposed to protesting against, that speaks volumes, Eliza. Um, very quickly, uh, I do have to go. I'll give you the last word and remind us one more time the tentative date for the uh, group to attend uh, Confederation Building. That would be next Wednesday, uh, March the 15th, I do believe. And we're hoping to get bus, a busload or carloads just to go in, sit in the House of Assembly, make our presence known, and advocate on the outside very peaceably. Very peaceably. Because we, we are a group now, we're so serious that kicking up a racket would not be good for anyone, not, uh, especially those of us who, who want to see a change. We're so concerned now that we've got to get into serious discussions because, because we have, there's no choice. Health care is an absolute mess. Anyway, hopefully we, uh, well, we don't, like I said, we don't mind the numbers. Numbers don't make any difference. The, crowd, the more the merrier, but even if we get two carloads, we will make our presence known. Appreciate the time, Eliza. Thank you. And thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. Uh, best athletes, another suggestion coming in. Kate Baisley, absolutely. Running to represent her country in that cross-country event and, of course, running in the world's major marathons. Uh, very quickly here, we have an update from the mother of the young fellow who was beaten at PWC yesterday. Apparently he is stable and alert, which is good news. When we come back from this break, there's actually a PWC student to talk about what happened yesterday and their feelings on it. Took away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one and say good morning to a student at PWC. Good morning, caller. You're on the air. Hi, good morning, Patty. Welcome to the show. Thanks for making time. So I don't really know how to approach this conversation, but do you want to tell us about what you know about what happened? Definitely. Okay. Um, there's like lots of rumors going around. I'm sure everyone heard them or whatever. <laughs> From my understanding, there was just five guys that came into the school. Um, one of them, they, some of them apparently had baseball bats. One of them had an axe, and that's when that's when they ran after the students, and he tried to come back into the school, but the doors were locked, so he didn't, and he ended up getting severely hurt. Yeah, so just to clarify, so the the gang of five went into the school and found the guy, the fellow that got beat up there, or how did they end up outside if the, if the gang went in? The gang did not go in. Okay. Was, that's, that's the rumor. They were just kind of on the porch um, when they, I guess, found him. And he was trying to come in, like the student was trying to come in, but with the doors locked, he couldn't. That's from my understanding. I'm not positive. <laughs> so 
they talk about this being an escalation of violence at the school. And I can remember some stories, including a bear spray story from PwC not yes. that long yeah. ago. So... For starters, what's the overall emotion? I'm sure some of the students are traumatized. Some of them are probably scared. I heard from a family that did not send their son, I believe it was a son, to school at PwC today. So what are your friends saying? Definitely, I have, like, a lot of friends that stayed home today. Like, it's it was, like, traumatizing to be here yesterday. Just not even to see it, and some people unfortunately did. Is there a sense, like, I mean, this this issue will make it feel very much like PwC, and it's not just PwC where we see these types of things necessarily, but before this happened yesterday, did people feel safe in the school? Because it's not the first time we've seen something fairly serious come out of PwC. Definitely. Um, we were actually writing, like, this thing yesterday where we had to write about how safe it was and how often fights occur, and, like, Almost everyone wrote that they felt fairly safe and like that fights never occurred. And then not even an hour later, this big thing happened. What are the administrators or their teachers saying to students in the classrooms today? Because it's going to be hard to minimize what happened yesterday, but there still has to be conversation about it. So do you know how that's looking and feeling today? Um, yeah, most teachers are just trying to say that it never happened type thing. Like, not that it never happened, but they're trying to make it seem as normal as possible, go on with the lesson plan. In the beginning of each class, they state that there is counselors down in the conference room to talk if, ever, if anyone wants to. Are you a student that wants to talk that. to one of the counselors? No, I never spoke to one of the counselors. Okay, so in the future, do you and your friends think or suggest that something in particular need to be done or could be done or should be done to make the school safer? Because, for one, during school class hours, doors always have to be locked and for obvious reasons. But, you know, are there Definitely. any thoughts about measures that could be taken, whether it be, like, God forbid, a security guard in the school? Or what do, what do people think? Well, we really just have no idea. Like, it's a big event nobody knows what to do about it um i am not a professional and have no idea what precautions should be the next steps taken but it's like it's definitely scary to be here and to know that these things have happened absolutely i, I mean it's not new it's not all of a sudden these things are happening when i was in no. high school which is a long time ago i graduated in 1986 there was plenty of violence in the high school that i went to i can tell you that much for yeah. absolute certainty so okay i'm you know it's really too bad that we have to be talking about this but i hope you heard the update that the young fellow who took the beating is stable and alert so that's good news very encouraging yeah. news this morning yeah. uh, anything else you want to talk about on that front while we have you no that is all I'm glad you made time for the show. Thanks for this. Be well. Definitely. Okay. Have a good one. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. Yeah. Oh, I should have asked her how it actually came to an end. Did they just leave him in a bloody pile and just thought that was enough for today? But look, the RNC are obviously actively investigating, and they are encouraging folks in the area, whether you have a doorbell camera or a camera just monitoring your uh, your driveway or what have you, just check it and, you know, see if there's something that you can provide to the RNC because 
you know, if they're willing to do that to this one fella, then they're going to be willing to do it to someone else. Now, the RNC and others are saying, I think there's a press conference right at this very moment with the RNC about some additional information that could be provided if there is any forthcoming. But they are asking folks in the this area. Patton Street, Elizabeth Avenue from Westerland Road to Freshwater Road, Anderson Avenue, Stab Court, Keegan Court, Copperwaith Court, and Mitchell Court. If you can help the major case management team get some additional video information or whatever else you might have to share, that can be very helpful. You know, I, I suppose I should never be surprised because I've seen it all or pretty much all of it at this point. But whether it be a media outlet or an individual tweeting about this particular story, the folks that are hopping on in the comments to minimize what happened is just so weird, you know? Saying, well, they're just a bunch of uh, overhyped, unregulated teenagers, blah, 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 blah. What? If the rumors are going to be validated that a group of five jumped one and they were wielding bats and an axe, I mean, how can that be anything but an absolutely serious crime? Assaults with deadly weapons. Maybe some it might be considered, based on whatever evidence they can compile, that an attempted murder charge, or well, who knows? But, you know, I just don't know where people's heads are to hop on and say, oh, for God's sake, when I was in high school, we got in fights and it wasn't in the news. Uh, well, what difference does that make, whether or not your fight made the news? Because this is nothing that we should be minimizing. And Ruth has asked me to take the student off the speakerphone. They weren't. It was just a cell phone. Sometimes those connections are a little bit hollow. That's all we can do. We're always hoping that we have uh, the clear connection. And so just a friendly reminder, if you are so inclined to call the show, we wish you would. Uh, if you are close by a landline, please consider that versus your cell phone because as clear as it might sound in your ear, maybe doesn't translate that way uh, over the radio. Steve's asking an important question, and there was no question I could ask the student because how does she know? He says, was it a random attack or was the victim known to the attackers? Apparently it was targeted. That's the information we have at this moment in time is that it was indeed a targeted attack. So it doesn't make it better or worse, but can you imagine if a, a group of five criminals uh, decided that the first person they got their hands on at, at PwC was going to be on the receiving end of the beating? So they are talking about it like it is a targeted attack. And what's behind that, what the motivation was, I have no earthly idea. I don't know if any of that information has been shared by anybody at this moment in time. Yeah, and okay, Fonce says that she didn't know how it ended. I guess she didn't see it, and I have no idea how it ended, but the investigation is just in its infancy. But Steve asked an important question, and I guess we'll get some of that information, and hopefully some of that additional information will flow after arrests have been made. Anyway, so pretty fun day here as it pertains to some of the uh, questions about who you think the province's greatest athletes are. Sometimes I throw out that kind of stuff because there's a lot of very emotional, traumatic, and difficult subjects we tackle. So every now and then, hopefully it doesn't distract from the big issues, just uh, chiming in at the very base with a couple of things that are really not that consequential is about who you think the good athletes are. Fancy got something else there? Birch Squires? Okay, fair enough. We're happy to tackle all those names. And I think I did throw out there uh, Pat Kelly, who's the swimmer, uh, she, and she was a big star. And I mentioned uh, Tolls Chapman as well, and doing some work with Tolls, and he was a uh, name suggested. He was actually voted St. John's Athlete of the Decade for the 70s and was a top athlete in so many different sports that, of course, very impressive career. And I did mention his uh, son, Ralph, was also a fine player. And uh, both of them not only played tennis, but racquetball and squash. Let me throw out there another great squash player from uh, my vintage, Steve Gardner. He was ranked uh, Atlantic-wide as one of the top players in the region. All right, check in on the email. It's uh, openline.vocm.com. Oh, no, wait now. 
Okay. This, that, this from Nima, I'll leave the person's name out of it. This was my nephew who got beat up yesterday. Not everything this lady is saying on your show is uh, not all totally true, but the school was the school. The locked school was the problem. He would have not been beat up so bad if he could have got back in. They did just leave him there. A friend helped out. The school needs to get their you know what together. Went uh, when I went to school, teachers were always outside. Absolutely, supervised lunch is part and parcel because you know someone also said to me today, well you can't control everything that goes on on lunchtime. Well, some schools at certain ages do. Like, you can't leave school grounds, for instance. Or you need written permission from your mother to go from Vanier to Sobeys for lunch. So, there are things that we can do. But yes, school parking lots and playground areas and wherever they congregate to vape or to smoke up or whatever. Yeah, you need some adult supervision there. All right, good show today. Good shows this week. Uh, for everyone who uh, supports the program, all the listeners, callers, emailers, and tweeters, you're all right. I'm off, uh, actually, on Monday, Tuesday, so we will indeed pick up this conversation with a replacement host on Monday, but with me on Wednesday. Uh, on behalf of the producer, Fonz King, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy weekend. Talk soon. Bye-bye.